Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, <laughs> this episode is fantastic. This week we are talking to the producer, engineer, mixer, Phil Brown. So imagine this, okay? You're in the room while Jimi Hendrix is recording all along the Watchtower. When the, sto the Stones are making Sympathy for the Devil. When Led Zeppelin is making Stairway to Heaven. You're in the room when Bob Marley is making I Shot the Sheriff. You're in the room with Sly and the Family Stone as they're doing the There's a Riot Going On album. You're there with Traffic while they make Dear Mr. Fantasy. You're hanging out with Bowie. You're in the room with Bowie. There's stories about all of these people and Phil was there. Now, Phil wrote a book about all of this called Are We Still Rolling, which is fantastic. I want to send everyone to go read this book. So we touch on about 10 or 12 of the stories from this book in here. Two of his longest standing sort of partnerships were one with Robert Palmer when he produced the first few Robert Palmer records. That's why you're listening to Sneaking Sally Through the Alley. If all you know about Robert Palmer is Addicted to Love, you've got a problem. You got to go back and listen to the old stuff. And then, probably most important to me, he worked with Talk Talk on their last two albums and Mark Hollis's solo album. Now, anyone who knows me knows that those all of the Talk Talk albums matter a great deal to me. Those last couple are, to me, they were inventing new music. And so we talk about Phil and his collaboration with Mark Hollis and how that music was made and uh, what they were under the influence of, what they did, how they did it. In addition, there's people like Steve Winwood, Red Box. There's a lot of Dido in here. Really interesting stories about Dido and Faithless. All fantastic stuff. Phil is one of those great, great guests where there are great stories, uh, strong opinions, and legendary music all in one. This is one of the, this is an instant classic, and it's long. But I think at this point you should know that if we're putting out a really long episode, it's because it's chock full of goodness. Okay. So, um, go check out the book. This is just some of the stories that were included in that book. It's so great. He called me from his home in Sussex, England. Well, for starters, um, <laughs> I, I was trying to think where I wanted to kick this off. I have to admit, Phil, in reading your book, the, something that kept coming back to me was, and I don't mean this as any, uh, being a, a producer cannot be easy on a family. I was thinking about all of the hours and days and months that you spent in studios, traveling around, all the while your wife, Sally, is home kind of raising the kids without you. Yeah. It couldn't have been easy for her. No, um, I guess it was a kind of different era. I mean, I was quite selfish, I guess. I mean, I took uh, work incredibly seriously. It was kind of the most important thing in my life, I guess which I know, again, is not, you know, PC today. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I just think you have to, you really have to go for it if you want to 
you know, succeed or do anything. You can't do it in half measures. Yeah. So yeah, she's an amazing lady. She stuck with me for 50 years. Um, she did bring up the kids. She was here a lot on her own. So yeah, remarkable. <laughs> yeah, it really is. It really is. I just was imagining you being gone for, you know, so long during that period and you're and you know uh you're off living the rock and roll dream and she's she's home so anyway she's a superhero i well, give her my best the thing is she you know as you read in the book i mean she used to run island studios so that's how i met her you know she was True. my boss in a way um so she kind of knew the life it's not as if she was completely outside of that world so True. although she gave up the kind of music business about 1973, I suppose, she kind of knew that world. So it, it wasn't such a, a massive shock as it would be to for some people. But no, she's remarkable to have stuck with it. I mean, she's quite easy going, I think, through the 70s, although that was the hardest time for her. The I mean, I, I, I know this is jumping ahead, but the albums that actually really was the test was Talk Talk. Mm -hmm because I was away for, you know, a year at a yeah. time. And she'd never, ever said, you know, you should do this or you shouldn't do that or whatever. But when I finished Spirit of Eden, she did actually say to me, if you ever work with that band again, you move out, you know. And I, I just remember that so clearly because when I worked with them again, I moved out, you know. So we've been yeah. through some amazing stuff. But That's yeah. so funny. I actually wrote that down in my notes, that same thing. Yeah, your wife is like, do not work with them again. And you went and did it anyway. <laughs> but you created some of the most amazing music I've ever heard in my life. And I'm going to ask you more about that. Okay. So, yes, I wanted to ask, I'm, we're going to get into Talk Talk, of course. Uh, one of the things that I was, I noticed about the book too was how many times, and I hope I got this right, that you were in the room while certain landmark songs were being recorded. Like, for instance, I think, if I remember right, you and Brian Jones. We're there in the room as Jimi Hendrix is recording all along the Watchtower. Yeah. What, what was this? First of all, what, I mean, tell us about Jimmy. Tell us about Brian. What's that like when you hear this song for the rest of your life? Does your mind go back to just being in that room and the smells? <laughs> that particular track had a massive effect on me. I mean, I don't know why, but that, I spent a year at Olympic training with kind of Glenn Jars, Eddie Kramer, those kind of guys. But all along the Watchtower, just the energy and the sound of it in the room um, on these old tannoy speakers, you know, and um, Olympic with a four-track machine, you know, there was, was little technology. Um, something stayed with me from that. I don't know what it is, but that energy and kind of getting results without all the technology um, just stayed with me. So, you know, for years and years and years, um, I could try and create things without having to have all the best bits of equipment, I guess, because I just knew that you can do it without all that. Um, but every time that track, I hear it, yeah, it takes me back to, you know, Olympic one. And I, you know, a lot of the things I've worked on have, have been by luck or just being happened to be there at the time, you know, and I think as you read, I was you know, stripping down a string session it was like, you know, 10, 11 at night or something. And there's a phone call, you know, from the guys that they're at a party and they wanted to, you know, is anyone in the studio? Cause we're coming down and Dave Mason was with them. And um, they just turned up. And I mean, um, in Noel Redding's book, 
he said, oh yeah, we're at this party and everyone was drunk and I didn't think it was worth going. So he never came to the session. It was uh, Hendrix that played bass. And really? Played, yeah, Hendrix played bass, Mitch Mitchell on drums, Dave Mason on acoustic guitar. And that's how they put the, the backing track down. And I say it's a four track machine. So it's yeah. drums in one track, bass on the track, acoustic guitar, double track the acoustic guitar. And that's kind of, you know, that was the night as it were. Yeah. Then it gets bounced to another machine and then more things added. Yeah. Um, the amount of times that we bounce things is remarkable now when everyone's going on about kind of, you know, being pristine and no bouncing. I mean, and this is analog. So each time you bounce, things change. Yeah. Uh, different in the digital world. But no, I mean, that, yeah, that track had a huge effect on me. When, um, um, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say he was just like, just such a lovely guy. He was very shy, you know, and um, obviously completely focused on what he was trying to do. But he wasn't some, you know, big rock star or rock god, you know, which I mean, I think through kind of social media, you know, and, and, and the years of the past, you know, Hendrix has been made into a god, as has Bob Marley and now more recently Mark. Hollis, but I mean, they're just regular guys, you know, I know that sounds a bit crazy, but yeah, uh, he was just very shy. Yeah. I've heard that he was always really um, self-conscious about his vocals. I can't remember if you've mentioned this in the book or not. Did he, were you there while he was recording his vocals? And if you were, did it need to be dark or anything? No, I don't have the, I, I wasn't there when we did the vocals. I was there when they put the backing track down. I was there about five days later with Eddie Kramer when we did all the electric guitars and all the panning and okay. stuff of the, on that section. Then they took it, I think they went to New York then and they dumped it onto a, a you know, a, an either an eight track or even a 12 track machine that was around at the time. And then they, you know, finished it all there. So I wasn't okay. around when they did the vocal, but I did, you know, I've been a great collector of multi-tracks for about mm. the last 20 years. And I have Hendrix, um, mm. a lot of Hendrix, four track and mm. often they're six track you know because you did four tracks and then you bounce that to another four track machine mm -hmm. and added two more tracks mm -hmm. so a lot of it is six track in, in in a way so i can listen to his vocal on um purple haze or mm -hmm. you know uh, foxy lady or whatever and uh, just hear his vocals that's great um, and it's um, you know again you know it's um we're also hung up today on perfection, but if you listen to the vocal track, you can hear him kind of coughing yeah. before he starts. You can hear the headphones blasting away at some phenomenal level, you know, and um, you can hear him kind of making jokes. I mean, it's just, it's reality, you know, rather yeah. than we've become- That's what we're missing. Yeah. Yeah. It's very pristine, mm -hmm. you know, editing out anything that isn't the vocal. Whereas yeah. if you put up the, Hendrix stuff or Bob Marley as well, you know, there's life there. There's there's yeah. people talking in the background or there's people kind of coughing or going, well, oh, I'll do that again. You know, it's yeah. just reality. And yeah. you just don't get that a lot yeah. now because we've got so much control. Yeah, agreed. Um, I'm going to ask you about Bob here in a minute, but uh, going back to Brian Jones, I'm guessing since those two came from a party, were they all dressed up in yeah. their you know, psychedelic clothes or whatever, looking fine. Yeah, if I remember rightly, I, I think Brian was wearing a white suit. Um, yeah. He came with his girlfriend, Lynn, at the time. Hendrix was very much um, quite classic to how you've seen him in films, in, uh -huh. in, in photos, I suppose. He had kind of, you know, 
uh, scarves hanging yeah. through his wrists and had his hat on and you know yeah. um, oh that's great uh, but uh, and it was I mean I guess the Stones and Glyn Johns Glyn Johns always used to wear you know it was that era wasn't it it's was like yeah. so he'd be wearing the flowered shirts or big ruffled necks and you know the big sleeves it was 67 68 when i was yeah. limp, so uh you know there was a, a lot of that but i mean brian jones again somebody completely misunderstood i think there's a wonderful documentary that was made about a year or so ago about his death you know because he it, it turned out that he was murdered um mm. but you know he's kind of a lost stone in a way you know i was around him on beggar's banquet and I mean, this is only a few months after he turned up with Hendrix and he was in good form when he turned up on the Hendrix session. He was in, you know, yeah. he may not be sober, but he was, you know, straight as you go. Yeah. And he was kind of coherent. Yeah. And then, you know, only three months later or something, he was, you know, quite bloated when we were doing Beggar's Banquet and, and definitely having problems, you know. Um, and I've always supported the guy because he, although, you know, yeah, he could be, aggressive and all the rest of it he was the best musician in the stones you know he could pick up anything he was. and play it yeah he was a remarkable guy and i've all i've you know i have a real problem with jagger and richards i think because they you know it was brian's band so you know yeah. they get involved Ag uh, agreed they, they take over yeah and then because brian becomes too much of a liability they sack him you know and then two or three months later he's dead and everyone yeah. goes oh dear I wonder why you know yeah um so I mean it's a tricky one because I work with the Stones and I've been around Zeppelin there's been a lot of deaths around both of those bands yep. uh, even the Beatles have had quite a few deaths associated around them you know yeah. with roadies and personnel yeah and um it's just the darker side of the music business they get which no one ever really wants to talk about um but no, Brian, you know, my experience of Brian was he was really a talented musician. Good, good. And, you know, had a sense of humor and could be a lot of fun. I mean, uh, when I was doing Beggar's Banquet, I basically dealt with, you know, Bill Wyman, Charlie Jones, Charlie especially, because I mean, Charlie oh. um, was, was just like so easy and, and easy going, you know. And yeah. Brian, who was a bit messed up, but I, I spent most of my time with those three. Because Jag and Richards were just, you know, Richards scared me. I must admit, he could be really. Quite, well, he was very, very angst and angry kind of guy, I suppose back then. Um, and Jagger was far too, you know, he's a chameleon. You know, he, he just adjusts to whatever's yeah. going on at the time. So I never really dealt with them much. But the, you know, the other three, and and also um, Bill Wyman. Uh, Bill Wyman, the, the key, keyboard player. Um, oh, um, Nicky Hopkins? Yeah, Nicky Hopkins. I mean, what a sweetheart, you know. So, yeah. you know, as a 17-year-old working on that album as a table, um, I dealt with the people that treated me okay and yeah. were, were nice people. You were know? nice to you. Yeah. One of the anecdotes you share in the book is, so Symphony for, or Sympathy for the Devil is, I go back and forth between that or Gimme Shelter being my favorite Rolling Stone song. Mm -hmm. um, but you were mentioning how many different ver versions of sympathy there were before the one that we know. And yeah. that was so, I, I just hadn't, my brain went to this other place, just imagining, because that sympathy, sympathy is so, is so unique with its, with the percussion and the kind of, uh, the woot woos and stuff like that, that are going on. It doesn't sound like anything else. And I'm imagining 
them going through 50 other versions before landing on that one. Do you remember specifics about what other versions sounded like or how they worked? Well, I, I mean, I, that, there's a great film, you know, the, the One Plus One or Simply for the Devil film by Johnny Goddard. I mean, it's, that's a great movie to watch. Because, oh, I don't know if I've seen that one. Oh, uh, you've got to check it out. Okay. It's, you know, it's Olympic Studio One. And they, so the film crew came in and, and they would record every other night. So, you know, the, the idea being that they would go away and edit and, and mess around with stuff and then come back and carry on filming. And um, that's a great film to watch, just to okay. see the layout of the, of the studio, you know, how the mics were, the, the, the equipment, and, and how down home it was. You know, people just sitting around on the carpet, on the floor. It wasn't all everyone, you know, again, you know, we weren't into this thing of separation. It was all about just getting a vibe and getting great sounds. You, you yeah. don't have to put everyone in, in you know, in boxes. And so that's a great film for anyone to watch if you want to see how the, the Stones recorded. But yeah, they started off, you know, because we did the whole album there, which I think took about six weeks, which at the time was a phenomenal amount of time. You know, I, I know the Beatles with Sgt. Pepper took about nine months, which was unheard of. But, you know, a lot of albums back then, you would do it in three or four days or a week or two, you know. So, you know, six weeks, a lockout in an Olympic was quite unheard of. Um, and they, yeah, they started off um, with the song, you know, and Nicky Hopkins would either be on, you know, try electric piano, acoustic piano, you know, all these different versions. And then just slowly, it, it kind of, it, it, again, if you watch the film, it just slowly morphed into, you know, Charlie on some African drums, you know, just trying out, everyone just trying out ideas. And then they get to this point where I think, in fact, Keith plays bass on it. Um, I think Bill Wyman is, is, is basically kind of, you know, we moved into a booth to play percussion with Charlie. Um, and then you see the way that track comes together and then, there's a great bit of footage where you have all, you have Marion Faithful, Keith Richards, Brian, Nicky Hopkins, all around a circle, around one mic, all doing that. Whoa, whoa, and, yeah. and, and it's so live because Keith is, you see him pointing up when he wants them to hit the key change. You know? And the other side of the screen, there's Jagger doing a lead vocal, which actually isn't the final lead vocal, but I mean, it's all happening live. You only had eight tracks. We had eight tracks then in, in March of um, 68. So, you know, you could have drums on one track now instead of drums and bass on the track. And, you know, there's, so there were, but I mean, that would have gone down on, you know, one track. Yeah. Uh, Jagger, wow. Uh, Jag, Jagger would have been on, on one track and the backing vocals on another, but it was probably the last two tracks that they had because eight tracks is still not a lot to work with, you know. That's why I loved that era and those engineers who could make these incredible records. I mean, Phil Spector started it all really for me with mono, yeah, but yeah. to make these records the way that the sound, the way they did, and only have like either one track with Spector bouncing it, or four track or eight track, you know. Once you get into, you know, sixteen is a lot, lot more convenient, and uh, most of my engineering started at, at sixteen. Um, I did a bit of eight track, but it, you know, I watched all that eight, four track, eight track, but 16 and then 24. And once you get past 24, anyone can make a record in a way, you know, because you can separate stuff and make decisions later. Whereas when you're working with eight track, so much has to be decided at the time. So the sounds in the room are really important. 
the whole vibe, you know, all of that. You can't suddenly plug in something later because we didn't have that kind of technology. Right. You know, we right. had the echo plates, a spring and tape delay. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's And your book details, I, I'm assuming you pulled from diaries or something or journals to be able to pull, know exactly what microphones you used, pickups, all that kind of stuff. Cause you detail all of that throughout yeah. the book. Okay. I didn't want to, yeah, I didn't want to make it too technical, really. I suppose I was trying to keep the, some people complain it's too technical, but I was trying to play down the technical sure. side because that wasn't really what it was about. They're actually from work diaries. Um, okay. You know, because I always knew, you know, I had to write down for Ireland what hours I did and what, you know, and if, if something happened on the day or somebody said something that was interesting or there was something about the day, I would just put a little note in it, mm -hmm. you know. And I kept all these. And when I came to do it, I mean, it took years really to put it all together. I bet. I bet. So whenever I bet. you think about writing a book, you know, yeah. don't think it's just a few months' work. I mean, <laughs> it takes a while. Um, okay, I got to ask you then about Stairway to Heaven because it seems like a similar story to Sympathy. I think you were around while, while Stairway is going through rounds and rounds of versions, you know? Yeah, Stairway came to me. I mean, they'd already got the drums down. You know, they had a backing track, if you like. They had um, drums, bass, a guide vocal, and um, and a kind of acoustic guitar that ran through it. Um, and I, I got involved uh, for five days to do um, the electric guitar side of it, I suppose. We did the flute section on the intro, which I don't know if it survived. But, I got a version of what I did, which has the flutes, but I never know if it ended up on the, on the original, on the final. But again, you know, it should be one of your high points in your career, and you know, everyone kind of goes, oh wow, sympathy, stairway to heaven, you know, but it was tough working with those guys. I, mean, I bet. Not for it, I mean, Robert Plant, I've worked with him a few times since then, and you know, he's he's very tight, which is why he's called Percy, because he never gets bullied <laughs> out. But he's, you know, a cool guy and he's reinvented himself and he's a massive music fan, you know. He used to play a game when I was working on an album with him, you know, 20 years ago or something. But, um, you know, he, you would, he would give you, you know, he'd say, right, name a, a, a single, you know, you give him an A side, he'd tell you the B side, where it was recorded, all that. I mean, he's an encyclopedia of music. I mean, the guy is very sus. And I like him a lot, I must admit. Um, but with... Stairway, I mean, um, I was dealing with basically Jimmy Page, and you've got to also, you know, the big figure is, is um, Peter Grant. And I think you've probably read the story with Jeff Beck and the Peter yep. Grant, Mickey Most thing. So right. when I, you know, when I got introduced to Peter Grant, and they said, oh, this is Phil, he's going to do your sessions. And Peter Grant said, you know, yeah, we've met before. Um, he's the 26 stone. East End wrestler, and um, I was about I don't know 22 or something, and I'd had this horrific experience only a year before with Jeff Beck and heavies and all kinds of stuff. Um, so immediately it was like oh my god, and um, Studio Two at Ireland was very small. I mean I'm sitting in front of Studio One at Ireland at the moment. This is what old Studio One looked like, but Studio Two was a small space, and You've got Peter Grant, you know, 26 stone. You've got Giant. two two minders, oh. right, who are just there for no apparent reason. 
And then you had Jimmy Page, uh, who was sitting kind of on the other side of the desk. So he's sitting on my right. You've got Peter Grant taking up most of the left-hand side. There, he's a manager, you know, why is he there? Um, and then you've got, you know, John Paul Jones, who's a sweetheart. I've worked with him a lot before Zeppelin. And Jimmy Page, I worked with Jimmy Page at Olympic. Before, Doing you know, jingles, right? They yeah, were they, they played on a lot of jingles. They did jingles and they did, um, you know, backing tracks for a lot of artists. Yeah. You know? They used to read music, you know, and Jimmy, Jimmy and John Paul Jones would be there, you know, playing away. Yeah. Um, so I kind of thought I, you know, I knew them from 67, 68, but this is now whatever, 72 or something. And um, it was tough because um, I found out later, I mean, probably 30 years later, I found out from, from Robert Plant how Jimmy works. And, and what he does is he improvises and keeps stuff and then in a way goes away in his head and he pieces all the bits together that he likes and it becomes a solo but no one said to me at the time no one really spoke to me and that was the other thing that was really disturbing you're doing like 16 hour days with peter grant who doesn't really communicate with you because you're just a lackey and jimmy who was pretty out of it at that point in his career you said how dark he was oh he was dark and you know i mean there's a lot, there was a lot of kind of smack and that kind of stuff around at the time with Jimmy, again, thanks to Keith Richardson. And he was into Alistair Crowley and it was dark, you know. So you've got Robert Plant, who's like, you know, pretty boy, easily fun going. You've got John Bonham, who's just up for a laugh. Yeah. You've got the sweetness of John Paul Jones, you know. So you've got this, again, it's this, con like the Stones, you've got this complete contradiction of like three guys that are actually really easy going. Yeah. You, know, you know, I mean, they might be stars and all the rest of it, but in the, in the studio environment, all that goes out. Yeah. And then you've got, you know, Paige. <clears throat> and I found it really difficult. And he never really spoke. He just said again. So we were dropping in on these solos. He'd go, right, drop in on bar five or bar 12 or whatever. So you're dropping in, you know, praying you don't make a mistake because, I mean, this is, there's no undo button. And next to you is this, you know, massive guy. <laughs> who you know, has a reputation uh -huh. and um jimmy never really spoke to, i suppose to me other than saying again again mm -hmm. go to the top again you know and you have 16 hours of that it kind of <laughs> does your head in you know right um and after five days i basically just was thankful that i was no longer involved i mean it should yeah. have been a high point but it was tough and i so i worked on stairway to heaven and four sticks they were the two mm -hmm. tracks and I have a version of Stairway Heaven that I sneaked off at the time. And it's, yeah, it's pretty wild. It's, um, there's a lot of out of tuners to it. It's wow. not focused at all, but look what it becomes. You know, I used yeah. to use in teaching, when I did a bit of teaching, I used to play this and go, okay, check this out. People listen and go, what the, you know, <laughs> yes. you know, this is yeah. what it became, you know, so yeah. never give up, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just kind yeah. of like, look, everybody goes through this it's not you know jimmy didn't walk in and just go oh one take right <laughs> takes a lot of work a lot yeah. of trial and error a lot of yeah. practice a lot of you know failure getting back up yeah oh that's, back that's then, you, know, when you didn't have the technology it was a lot of trial and error and uh -huh. you know, failure or success you know yeah uh, but it was nerve-wracking let's just say i believe that. it i believe it now you purpose at the end of the book you mentioned that you weren't allowed to talk about Robert Plant in the book. Why is that? 
when, when I worked with, I've worked with Robert in, a, I, think, um, I think the album's called Discovery, but I worked with him in around 2000. Dreamland. Dreamland. Isn't that what it's called? Dreamland? Yes, yeah. Dreamland. I always get it wrong. Yeah. Um, I worked with him on that. So it's 2001. And um, he knew I was, you know, I was at the finishing stages of this book, you know, because I talked to him about it. So when this production contract came through, there was a clause saying I cannot talk about or write about Robert. You know, it's just one of those things, <laughs> which is kind of amusing in a way. Uh-huh. Uh, it's completely unnecessary, but, you know, it's like yeah. fine. Just know, in case. He's got least- a metal, he's got a rock god persona to maintain. You know? Yeah, when you've got a contract that's like 50 pages long, you know, one clause that says you can't write about that's fine. You know, I'm more yeah, worried that's about true. the other 50, you know. Right, right. Um, okay, I got to, I want I'm really curious about uh, Sly and the Family Stones, there's a riot going on. Yeah. Uh, whenever I, I know that people love that album, critics especially, and I get it, but when I listen to that album, I... It's almost frightening to me how strongly and vividly to me it depicts a man spiraling into the depths of drug addiction. That's all I can think of. It just has this darkness to it that is almost scary and claustrophobic. I can't imagine anyone even working on that album. I can't imagine Sly coming in and saying, here's what I'm working on, guys. What do you think? Help me out. Well, I, I guess, I mean, I, again, I was lucky when I worked with him. He'd, just, he'd been in Germany and he had all these, um, he had a, it was a, like a new drum machine. Drum machine, excuse me, drum machines in 1970, 71 are pretty rare. And um, he'd just basically got a lot of rhythms he'd set up and played on this drum machine and recorded it to a 16, you know, one track of a 16-track tape. So he then turned up at Ireland, and I spent this wonderful week with him, and I did bow out at the end, partly because of what he was saying. We, we had a ball in some ways. He was very easy to communicate with, and uh, he was, him and his sister, I mean, they were really lovely. And I mean, he just set up in the control. We never really used the studio, but he just had a, you know, a far feeser, um, his bass, vocal mic and he was basically putting on drum rhythms and just trying out ideas i mean i was you know this was so early on in the in the project um so we put up a drum pattern and he would try out some stuff you know and and uh, i think as i said in the book but i mean you know we would do a take for you know whatever four minutes and then he'd do a line of coke, and he had this the biggest bag of coke I've ever seen he, before then. But since then, I think as well, you know, there was probably a pound yeah. on the end of the desk. And he would always, you know, he's a very generous guy, like some people, and he'd go, oh. and um, we'd just do a take. He'd try something, he'd have a line, we'd do a take, he'd try something, you know, and it went on like that for five days. And I actually bowed out. I could have gone on for another week, but I actually said, I can't deal with this, you know. Right. Um, and I think I said, but, you know, I left with a kind of bleeding nose and um, mm-hmm. two, two Polaroids of me and Sly. <laughs> he then went back to America after the two weeks that he did at Ireland. Um, and we did get some stuff down, but, you know, it was all experimental. Uh, he then went back to America and pretty much collapsed not long after he got back and was out of out of circulation for almost a year. So when the album finally came out, um, it was a year or two years or more later, you know, when there's a right 
going and came out. And it was only uh, basically a family affair. When I heard that, it was like, wow, this is the thing we were, you know, because I remember the drum beat and various bits and pieces. And I think that's a great example of you can just hear yeah. the cocaine dripping down his throat. You can. You can. <laughs> yes. I know. That's what I think of every time I hear that album. It's uh, it's kind of scary to me. But that's so, it's, what a dichotomy to imagine what you're saying, that he was a, you know, a nice, fun-loving, easy-to-work-with guy at, at this supposedly really dark chapter. I don't know. It's just crazy. If it was a dark chapter, I mean, certainly a dark chapter from a health point of view, but I mean, he never really, I mean, it got worse. Yeah. After that album came out, I mean, you know, he's, in fact, I had a connection with Memphis um, because I worked with Willie Mitchell. Mm-hmm. And there was a bit of a connection there, and they asked me if I would, you know, if we can get slide, you know, back up and running. Would you ever work with him again? I go, man, I'd love to work with the guy again, but you know, only if he's coherent, you know. Yeah, and it's never happened. I mean, he's not done much, has he, in the last no. thirty years? No. Um, it's a great, it's a sadness because the yeah. guy was. I mean, I loved the first album. Was that life? It had life. Of- there was um, stand. Stand, whatever album yeah. that's on. That's yes. the album. Yes. yes. That, when I was living in Toronto, that was an album of kind of 69 for me. I just, it was played everywhere. I played it all the time in my apartment. Um, I just love that record and, and the kind of positive, the up vibe of that. Yep. Um, admit it, you know, he was even there getting into that thing, wasn't I mean, he? He's always been edgy, I guess, when you've got tr- things like Don't Call Me Whitey, yeah. you know, all of that. Mm-hmm. Don't call me nigger, Whitey. Right. So he, he was, you know, he certainly had a, a certain attitude. Um, there's a ride going on. I do love a lot of the tracks, but I, for me, I can't get past hearing the cocaine. Mm-hmm. Same. That, that's all it, it, to me, it's just a cocaine album. Same. And Stand is my favorite too. That to me is the ultimate. And so to hear the guy who creates such positivity in Stand go to Riot next, which is the complete opposite, is just, it's too frightening of a change almost. It's so scary to me. Um, Okay, I wanted to ask you about Bowie um, because you had mentioned that at first, I don't think you were all that impressed with David Bowie. And if I remember correctly, were you around... Um, going back to this theme of being in the room when certain songs are recorded, were you, was it Holy Holy from uh, The Man Who Sold the World that you were around for? I did Holy Holy, yeah. Whether it's the version on that album, but we did ver- that, we did the single okay. um, uh, uh, again in Studio Two of Basin Street. No, I, it's a, I have a weird thing about Bowie. I mean, I, I'm, compl- I'm obviously you know in the minority, but I never really got it. He was very good at... at, at I mean, I won't say stealing, but, you know, taking people's ideas or influences and then making it his own. Um, but holy, holy, I mean, that was pretty tedious stuff. And again, he was already playing the rock star, you know what I mean? He didn't communicate particularly well. Um, but I know him through, I, I met him later, more in a social way through Danny Gillespie, who's a, a, an artist on Main Man, who I work with a lot. And we stayed with Angie Bowie and, and um, the Sherry Netherland in New York in Bowie's suite. There was a lot of darkness around the Bowie thing, and I just never really got it, I must admit. Um, 
because initially he sounded like Anthony Newley. He was a, yeah, do you know Anthony? I mean, he kind of started to sing like Anthony Newley, and I never really understood why. Um, and in fact, in various books and things that have been written, there's a great explanation as to why he kind of went that route. And, and for a long time, you know, it wasn't as if he just did it for a few months. So yeah, I can appreciate some of the records he's made, and uh, but I, I just always think that it's it's an amalgamation of a lot of other people, including a lot of the guys in the bands that he had. I don't think he ever really took along the people that were helping him make the records and really gave them much credence, if you know what I mean. Um, I know his producer, you know, he's had a career, same as Eddie Kramer, really, he's had a career out of Hendrix. You know, Bowie's producers had a career basically out of Bowie. Sure. Um, I just think that in some ways Bowie could have done a lot, a lot more. <laughs> I mean, I know it all sounds a bit crazy because I know he's done a huge amount. Yeah. Some of the later stuff, the last album he did, the bits I've heard of that, um, and the videos and things he made, I thought those were pretty amazing when, yeah. when I knew he was dying. Right. And some of that stuff is just like, wow, now this yeah. is really, you know, this is Bowie. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, I say I, I knew him a bit socially. I won't get into all the stuff that was going on. Oh, interesting. I, I just didn't really. Um, You're more of a skeptic. Okay. Yeah, I am. Hmm. Not but a I lot say, of people say that. I'm obviously in a minority because sure. I, so many people just think that he's a god, you know. But, yeah. Um, I've just never, it's never, it's never hit me here. Okay. You know? mm -hmm. I, uh, I love that you say that because it's 10 times more interesting to hear somebody who is a skeptic than it is to hear somebody who gets it. You know, most of us get it. It's the skeptic that I think is more unique. So I'd rather hear from you. There's very few people I've worked with that, I, that I've that i had that feeling of, of suspicion or just, uh -huh. like, I don't really get this. Yeah. Um, most of the people I work with, I can, even if they're not successful or something, I can see what it's all about. And, right. And, their core you know i never really got it with him i just huh. don't really and then i say when i you know i feel very sorry for angie Burry, the way that you know she was treated um after he split and um yeah i mean i think yeah, yeah he's a tricky character okay oh that's fascinating i love him <laughs> and i'm so i love that you're saying this it's so interesting to me um okay I wanted to ask you too, well, let's get into Bob Marley because one of my favorite stories in the book, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember the context. Did you go down to Jamaica to help record something or with the intention of recording something and all of the Jamaican reggae guys were supposed to show up at a certain time and they showed up like days later? And yeah, in the meantime, they keep saying, we'll, we'll be over soon, man. We'll yeah, be there soon, man. It was mainly Steve Smith who set this all up. Steve Smith was an American guy from Alabama who was in Smith Perkins Smith and worked at Muscle Shoal um, and got himself a, a deal as an artist with Smith Perkins Smith on Highland. And we met up very early, I mean, maybe 74 or something. Uh, and we worked a lot on the Robert Palmer albums and um, Elephant's Memory. And we did a vast amount of stuff through the 70s. We were a great team. Um, uh, but with the Bob Marley stuff, we used to, uh, a lot of stuff was recorded on an eight-track machine in, in Trenchtown. And then we'd bring it back to London, copy it to a 16-track, and then add extra instruments to, you know, this was Blackwell's idea, really, to make it more accessible. 
Um, so we sped things up you know, to get away from that kind of roots reggae, mm -hmm. um, added more things to make it more commercial. You know, it was a definite decision by Blackwood. And um, yeah, there was just that thing of uh, Steve Smith set this whole thing up, which at the time was a big thing, you know, to go and record Bob Marley. And um, yeah, he didn't really show. I mean, no one <laughs> showed, you know, it was just like, oh yeah, we're coming down soon, you know. And then you'd just be there in the studio, you know, for days. <laughs> just <kind of> <laughs> Is anyone going to show up? <laughs> but the first time I really worked on them was the... Um, was the burning album that was the, the start of, of like a proper you know doing overdubs mm -hmm. mixing speeding things up so we had to redo bob's voice because you can get away with the music obviously but you can't get away with the vocal um, <clears throat> that's when i burnt um, i shot the sheriff um, i think <laughs> mm -hmm. that's right which was kind of um yeah i mean it's amazing that i got away with it at the time amazing that no one found out about it for 20 odd years it that was, was a julian great mendelson. story it was julian mendelson who who he phoned me up one day about 93 or something and um he said so what's the what's the story with the edit you know it was completely like what edit he goes no nah, no nah, don't give me all that stuff you know <laughs> I'm just mixing, I shot the sheriff. Uh, I think it might have been an anniversary of Bob's death or birth or something. We were doing an alternative mix. He goes, so what's the story? He said, that's no ordinary edit. So he tweaked it, but no one knew. But yeah, no, I mean, we were basically doing, I say we, you know, dumped everything onto 16 track and they had three versions of I shot the sheriff and Blackwell just said, look, I want this section from the first tape, I want this chunk and then I want go back to the first one and this jump, you know, and yeah. said, just give it 10 minutes, you know. But the thing is, uh, they were all there, you know, the way, we're in a small room, control room studio two was small. And, and these were, you know, these were big street kids from Trenchtown, you know, I mean, everyone thinks of them as being these little lightweights, you know, these were heavy dudes, you know. And with, you know, Blackwell there, you know, five guys in the band, you know, the whole room was rad. And there's a lot of spliff. And, and I said, I just go out and play some pool. Give us 10 minutes. And they all go out. And as they're leaving, family man Barrett, he gives me this end of a, of a well, end, half a, <laughs> half a joint, which Steve Smith called them baseball bats. I mean, right. <laughs> they were just like neat grass, you know, huge things. And uh -huh. uh, he goes, hey, you'll be needing this. You know? So he gives me this joint. And we all smoked at Highland. You know, it was not, it was it was all part of the of the thing of having fun and you know sure. making music. Um, it was a different era. And again, you know, I mean why I have an idea that I'm smoking it and editing. No, nothing wrong in that, you know. <laughs> of course. And, uh, so I had the, you know, I got the first, um, you know, minute and a half or whatever, and cut that and put that there. And I was on the second take, and I'd marked the bit I was dropping. We, we would drop it. We would cut editing on a kind of ga 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 ga. One of those. I think the third one, and. Um, just as you know, I've got it marked, and I'm standing above the edit all two-inch tape. And um, just as I'm about to hit it with the razor blade, this joint just falls apart. And I mean, I'm, it's like a car crash. I mean, I'm watching it in slow motion. I really am. As it just, you know, and it goes down. Of course, it doesn't burn it, but it melts it. Uh -huh. So this two-inch tape is suddenly like half an inch, and it's all curled at the edges. <laughs> 
and there's only me and this guy Dave, my tape off, in there, and he's looking at me like, "Are you crazy or something? You know what the fuck are you doing?" <laughs> and the only reason I got away with it is that because we had three takes, we weren't using I think the third take, so I took this drum fill uh -huh. off, off a third take, you know put it into there and then got back to what I was supposed to be doing and you know, pieced it all together. And it took about 30 minutes and it wasn't an ordinary edit. Julian Mendelssohn is completely correct on that. It wasn't just like a nice clean cut. There's bits of tape everywhere. Then I call them in to listen. Of course they come in and listen to it. It all sounds fine. You know? He's my boss, you know, Blackwell is my boss directly. I'm employed by him. You know? Right. And he was just, he was just annoyed that it had taken so long, you know. Uh -huh. he goes, well, let's just get on, let's do some Hammond, you know. He just wanted to, you know, because right. we were fast, you know. Though. Right, right. You know, I mean, I this is going to sound like I mean, you're not going to believe this, but they live at the Lyceum when that was recorded over two nights. We only could use the second night because the first night the audience kind of invaded the stage and mics got moved and all kinds of chaos. But the second night we put things in a different place. Um, but on the, that was a Thursday or Friday, I think. On the Sunday, we were mixing the album. I mixed the whole album manually in six and a half hours. Hmm. I mean, I can't even believe that. That's amazing. You know? And it was like, that includes- Did you have a baseball bat at your hand <laughs> the whole time? <laughs> yeah, but I kept it away from the tape. So oh, okay, it, okay. And I mean, I was, you know, say it was manual. So it's on one of these desks that, you, that I'm sitting in front of, Helios wrap around and it's 16 track because we always with bob marley we always did 16 track even though we had 24 because it sounded better yeah is better so we always did 16 tracks so it was 16 track live recorded and tracks 15 and 16 with the audience and we were setting up trenchtown rock which happens at about midway through the, the concert Some reason, Blackwell said, "Right, set up Trenchstone Rock." So we, we was, I was setting up Trenchstone Rock. They're all just dancing around and spliffing and partying, you know. And I'm setting up a mix, and then Blackwell just is yelling from the other side, "More audience!" Tweak <laughs> of audience, you know. A bit more mixing, it goes, "More audience," you know. 
And we get it up to twice. I mean, it was to me, it was just like, wow, really? I mean, this is like, and it's only worked because the PA was such a good mix. Oh, you know, it was obviously disturbing my mix each time I pushed it up, but it was a good mix. Mm -hmm. So you'd make adjustments, and eventually we got it to a point, and Blackwood says, Sounds great, right? Back to the top of the concert. He didn't even go back. We didn't even put down Trenchtown Rock. No way. He goes, go back to the top of the concert, run it off like, run it off, run it uh -huh. off like that. So basically, you're there mixing manually, kind of almost front of house, just going with the vibe of what's happening. Yeah. The audience right up there. So you know, we had whatever four reels, you know, at fifteen IPS. So we kind of ran that first couple of hours, you know, probably an hour to set up the thing originally. Did some crossfades, a couple of copies, and Black was walking out the door with his 15 IPS copy six and a half hours later. Uh, <laughs> Insane. That's crazy to work like that. And then, I mean, you know, that's that's the thing. Like six and a half hours of work, and the Bob Marley live album lives on today, and uh, you just never know, you know. I mean, it's a great album. I mean, it, has it is energy because of the gig. The audience yeah. make it. I mean, Blackwell was right. He's, he's, yeah. He, that was a great producer in that sense. He just has a feel for things, you know? Yeah. And yeah, it's one of my all-time favorite kind of live hours. And nothing Definitely. because I had anything to do with it. I just think right. you put it on and immediately, you know, within yep. 30 seconds, you're there. Yep. Yep. Uh, yep. Okay. We should get into Robert Palmer. You mentioned him a minute ago. And he, from the book, I would say he and... Steve Winwood, who I'm going to ask you about next, and then Talk Talk are probably three of the biggest, most long-standing relationships it seems like you had creatively as a producer, engineer, whatever. I'm of the opinion that Robert Palmer is so incredibly underrated yeah, because yeah. all anyone thinks about really are the 80s with Addicted to Love and all that. Yeah. And that, you know, I was happy that he had success, but those to me almost sound like sellout moves. Those first six Robert Palmer albums are amazing. And you did Sneaking Sally, which is probably the best of all of them. So fun to do. all of those albums were just, yes. you know, we did Sneaking Sally and we, um, it was recorded with um, the meters and Lowell George. That was the combination. So we, you know, brought Lowell George into the meters, recorded a bunch of backing tracks. Then they brought, we had an Island Mobile at the time. Um, and we brought it down to my house here in Sussex. Uh, we started in London. We were working at the back of Island Records in um, Chiswick. Um, but there were so many interruptions from just like, you know, musicians and people popping by, and, hey, just wanted to say hi, you know, and just all the chaos of like office. And Robert said, oh, this is tough, you know? And I said, well, you know, you can always come to my house because we'd not long really moved it, but we had no kids. It was like 74 or something like that. Um, so we brought the mobile down here and rigged up the fold back to the speakers here and everything. So you could hear, you know, the tracks playing through the monitors. You had headphones as well. I had a, a room here that was completely soundproofed. So we could, you know, use the lounge bit live. We had a dead room and we just, you know, recorded the overdubs here. There was Robert, there was Jody Linscott, Kushner, Steve Smith, myself and Ray, the guy drove the van, drove, drove the mobile. And after about, I guess, three or four days of that, it was like, well, yeah, hey, like, why don't we go off and just, you know, do something else? So we just mm -hmm. took the mobile, had a generator, 
and we just parked outside churches and mm-hmm. places that just seemed really cool and just recorded in like you know against walls of churches yes. in the church you know just again experimenting but just basically having a ball you know yeah we just, you know we were we had this license to just do stuff right and it was while we were and we mixed a lot of sneak and sally uh we didn't they're not the final mixes but we did do a lot of mixing here one night we did you know side two has got through it all this year which is this like 16 minute mm-hmm. song and all the time that you know steve was always a bit nervous because of its length and robert so one night we basically went through and kind of halved each section so we were cutting out you know four bars here and up and they hanging the tapes off off the mobile mm-hmm. spent all night and brought it down to seven minutes and went to bed got up in the morning went in listened to it and robert goes yeah i know it's i know it's the right length but i prefer the original so I then had to take apart every edit, you know, <laughs> put back every beat. Right, right. <laughs> and then we mixed in London. But while we were here, which is my point, really, um, one night Robert and I were, were sitting in my sound room, which is this dead in the room, and we were just, you know, making lists of our heroes. So we had Lil Feet and James Jameson and Carol Kay and Ed Green. And I mean, just all our heroes. And um, the next day, the piece of paper was just lying on the table when Steve Smith came down and said, what's this? And Robert says, oh, it's a bit of fun last night. It's, we just put out, just writing our heroes down and um, we'd love to work with these people, you know, as a kind of offshoot, you know what I mean? And Steve said, can I borrow that? So he takes this piece of paper of, of just a game and goes off and he was a real hustler, great American, you know, I'll get on the phone, I'll sort yeah. it. And um, he phoned up a I guess two or three weeks later, um, after we'd mixed Sneak and Sally in London, and he phoned up and said, right, we're in Baltimore with Little Feet for these five days. We're in New Orleans with uh, the Meters for these dates. We're in Muscle Shoals for these dates, you know what I mean? And then, you know, then we're going to be in LA for a while. I mean, that was the start of That's those. That's amazing. So pressure yeah. was, and we worked with Little Feet just after they'd finished Feet Don't Fail Me Now. So they were, they'd just finished recording and mixing and they decided, they agreed to stay there for an extra four or five days. So we just turned up and in, you know, four or five days, we put the whole album down. And then we went, you know, Robert went off on the road with Lil Free, which I don't yeah. know many people know about, but he went touring the East Coast. Steve and I drove all the way down to New Orleans, went in with the meters, recorded the whole album again with the meters, right? And we went to Muscle Shoals, did some overdubs, then flew from Huntsville to LA and got in James Jameson and Ed Green and you know, Spiderweb and all these amazing people, along with members of Little Feet. Yeah. And recorded the album again. So we had like three or four versions of it. Then we came back to England with all these tapes, which I used to carry on board. I wouldn't stick them in the hold. And um, we then listened through with again with the mobile, I took the mobile out to Chris Blattle's place out in Thiel. And we went through and said, right, this version, that version, this is great, blah, blah, blah. Ended up with our backing tracks. And then Robert started doing overdubs. And that's when I got into recording outdoors. Yes. We'd going outside. Started. Wasn't going outside literally yeah. recorded outside? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
The reason why I loved it is that if you really want to hear how the voice or anything sounds outdoors, you don't have any coloration. I mean, we did sometimes record against a brick wall or something to get something. Yeah. But if you just stand, you know, if you put some screens around outdoors and just put up a mic, that's how you sound. You know, it's yeah. just, it just there's nothing. It's dead. Yeah. So get outside is is like that. And um, work to make it work was done outside, um, and it was what with Black Boy, when he saw what we were doing, that's what made him in 76 get me involved with John Martin. Right. That, that, to pump, to record outdoors. You know, mm -hmm. he pumped mm -hmm. his PA system across this lake because it was mm -hmm. surrounded by water. But no, Robert was, I mean, he was A, a good mate. We ended up having a really good friendship. And um, right up until, he, up until he died, we were in touch, you know. Good. Drunk and phone calls at night. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I never realized that he was still living the life that we, you know, that we'd lived in yeah. the 70s. I mean, I was shocked um, that he died at 53. And then yeah. when I found out how he was still living, you know, smoking yeah. four cigarettes a day, drinking a bottle of scotch, still doing coke. It's like, wow, you know, no wonder yeah. it all made sense. Yeah. But, um, you know, I sent him various parts of the book and said, you know, what do you think? And, you know, would you get involved? And, I remember one of the last phone calls regarding the book, he phoned up and, and we were talking about it. He said, yeah, yeah, I'd really love to, you know, to, to write something. I went, that would be great, man, you know. And he goes, it's just one thing. He says, uh, I don't ever remember doing coke. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just like, typically, you know, and then hung up, you know. What I mean? <laughs> you couldn't get Little Feet in the studio unless you had coke. <laughs> We did a deal with the studio in uh, in LA, on one of the studios. Anyway, we would put down a you know a reel of two inch tape, so whatever, hundred sixty dollars or two hundred dollars, whatever it was, and they would give us the cash, and we'd buy coke. You know? Uh huh. 
and it would go out because Robert said he wanted to pay for everything, but he hadn't got any money. I mean, you know, he didn't make a lot of money for years. Yeah. All yeah. those albums were failures. You know, they yeah. never produced. But he said, you know, this was the third album, I think. Um, some people can do it alike. And in the, he said, I'd love to pay for everything, but I haven't got any money. So let's all put it on the on the tab, as it were, you know. So the, the you know, the work uh, sheets from the studio had, you know, 14-hour days or whatever, and then like eight reels of tape. <laughs> <laughs> so those eight reels of tape kind of were there every day for weeks. Yes. You know yes. So yeah, those were code for uh, stimulants, maybe. It was great. You know, he was a dream to work with, and I loved all those albums I did. With. The, the hardest one was probably Double Fun. That was the one that was yeah. least fun. Yeah. Um, because we'd a lost Steve Smith, but also we'd kind of we moved to New York, which I think was a mistake when you look back to the fun we'd had in, in you know with Little Feet and Baltimore and LA and Muscle Shoals and New Orleans. You know, New York's a different mm-hmm. world. You know what I mean? And um, I don't think either of us were really expecting that. We kind of got taken slightly for a ride um, by some of the musicians who were all charging triple time. Yeah, and then bring in their mating, who was also on triple time. You know, I mean that it was a a big learning curve. I think that happened, yeah. um, and a lot of that stuff. Some of it we kept, but it, a lot of it did get redone later in in Philadelphia. Yeah, he um, a couple of things, little uh, items of color that you included in the book that I really liked. One was that he read a lot of sci-fi, science yeah. fiction. Yeah. which I just love little interesting tidbits like that because that's the only that's the stuff you find out when you really know somebody. I think it was Jack, I'm just Jack Vance. It? I think I think the guy's name was Jack Vance. He, okay. I don't I'm not a big sci-fi guy, but I'm just imagining Robert Palmer, you know, getting on planes with sci-fi books under his arms and stuff like that, you know. Yeah, no. And he bought, um he bought the rights to some of those some of those books because I Really? Yeah, I think it was Eyes of the Overworld which was a Jack Vance book, but he, he you know, because he loved this this stuff so much and he was heavily into Oh, that film about the moon landing, you know, was it a hoax um, that oh. was around at the time? There was a film made, um, but he was Can't very really. much into sci-fi and, and uh-huh. you know, books. And it, so he bought the rights to that because he wanted to get it made into a movie. Wow. But he was a, you know, a fair lovely guy, great to work with, great yeah. sense of humor. And, Ladies uh, everywhere, it sounded like. Ladies loved Robert Palmer. Yeah, no, he was... He was a demon. I mean, on a, on a, uh, probably the, out of all the people I worked with, probably the most kind of Casanova that I've uh-huh. ever worked with. I mean, it was just incredible. It was, he was like a magnet. So you know, yeah. he'd do a film shoot and end up with the girls on the film shoot, <laughs> or, you know, album covers, whatever uh-huh. it was. You know, he, yeah, he had a lot of women. Yeah, uh, married too. While it was all happening, but uh, that's rock and roll for you, I guess. He was married too. You found out eventually. But yeah, uh, yeah, that doesn't I, matter when you're a rock star. Yeah. No, I mean, it was just, um, yeah, and Sue was fantastic as well. I mean, they eventually she did kind of walk, but yeah, um, yeah. She, she was great. And I've got some, a great photo when they're all down here when, because both uh, Robert and I, we both called our sons James after James Brown. Obviously, mm. for me, it was a bonus because I am James Brown, as, as it were. Sure. Um, so, and he called his kid James. And um, there's a great photograph I've got of Sue, Robert, James and his gym and my daughter and, uh, uh-huh. and Sally, this great photograph. So yeah, we had a great relationship. I mean, I, I kind of really missed him. I mean, it's been about 20 years now, so yeah. it's kind of, you get used to it, but it's... Um, 
It's so sad. Hit at all. Those first four albums, the first hit we had was Every Time a People. Said the fight to make ends meet. Keep some man up on his feet. Holding down his job. Trying to show he can't be bought. Blackwell, who yeah. loved what we were doing. So when we did Sneak and Sally, it got great reviews in America. I think it was Sleeper of the Year for Playboy. Over here, they took him apart, the English press. They said, oh, here we go, another white boy goes off to America. You know, they just didn't talk about the music. They were just yeah. getting to him. Um, and, and Chris said, well, I love the album. He says, well, okay, so, so go, and do, go and do another one. And we, we did Pressure Drop within six months of finishing Sneak and oh, Sally. Man. And then when we did Pressure Drop and that didn't happen, it was like, well, go and do another one. You know, yeah. we did four before we oh. had that little hit. They're all so good. I, I wish people could go back and and discover those. I don't think enough people realize that those are, that's the foundation of Robert Palmer is those albums yeah. you made. The Addicted to Love and Simply Irresistible, that's not the guy. Those are fine, but that's not the guy that, you know, he had to be this other greater artist first. He was a great writer, wasn't he? I mean, looking for clues, those albums, all that stuff before he yeah. actually had the, the, the power station. Yeah. Um, there's some great stuff there. Yeah, there He's is. He's a clever writer. Um, yeah. A great, um, there's a humor in some of the stuff. Uh, it's definitely very English. Yeah. Johnny and Mary, you know, looking for clues. There's some great tracks. I love it. Speaking and, of people you worked with who really. Uh, blo- I don't know if Blossom's the right word, but found a huge success in the 80s. We got to talk about Steve Winwood. He's one of my favorites too. In fact, he's, um, you'll have to confirm this for me. I've mentioned before, he's maybe my number one dream interview just because I think he's done so many different things and I'm. he seems kind of like a, a mysterious guy. And you sort of touched on this in the book. He doesn't talk much, he's quiet. He likes to work in the dark. One of the bits of color that you added that I thought was so interesting that he wore a hoodie with like the hood up over his head and just kind of hunched over a Hammond or a keys or whatever for days and days. And I thought 
And then I've heard that he's actually not that interesting of an interview. And so don't worry about it. But uh, one thing I want to ask you about specifically, you mentioned in the book that November of 1967 was your most memorable experience, but I couldn't remember if you actually said what it was or if that was like a little Easter egg. No, I did. It was, um, it was, again, it's, it's shooting forward to the Mark Hollis thing, but the first time I met Mark Hollis and he, um, and I'd had a kind of, you know, a pub interview, if you like, but we never talked about music. I mean, this is mm. the kind of weird thing. It was never music was never discussed. He just uh, talked about football, which is not really my thing. Mm. And, um, weirdness and politics and, and stuff it was just like a really fun hour and a half with yeah. a plowman but no music and then he i had to leave i had to get back into town we were just outside london i had to get back in for a, a session or a rehearsal or something so i said i've got to go he goes oh you're going anywhere near a tube station i said sure goes, can you give us a lift you know and that was a clever move on his part i think mm-hmm. i don't know if it was set up but you know having no then knew him for 13 years it probably was set up um, so he gets in the car and of course I'm now driving, you know, I'm a driver now in rush hour London traffic. Mm-hmm. And so we're talking then, but, uh, and we did cover m- more things like m- music. And then he saw a tube, he says, oh, you can drop me here. And he just said to me, cause he knew I worked at Olympic. And he said, so what sums up Olympic to you? And I mean, right off the top of my head, he said, oh, 1 a.m. November, 1967. He goes, wow, who was that with? I went traffic. And he just smiled and left. I didn't know that traffic was his big hero band. Mm-hmm. Right. But going back to that, it was, um, yeah, in November, you know, I started there <clears throat> as a tape up. I was just, just 16 or just 17. And I worked with Keith Grant, who was the guy who owned the place and an amazing engineer as well. You know, we worked on a homemade, uh, desk which was became a helios but it was at the time it was a it was one mm-hmm. that keith grant and, and dick sweatnam had built and i did all keith's you know because you know keith's going to train you but also you have to, you, I, I was on a three-week test i suppose mm-hmm. and um so i i tape up for him and we did things like dusty springfield and harry seacom and um uh, and we would do you know i'd watch keith especially on Dusty Springfield, Leonard Cohen. Oh, sure, sure. Yes. He would have like a 50-piece orchestra in the studio recording it in stereo to two tracks of a four-track machine. So he's mixing as he's recording. Mm -hmm. This is my introduction to this world. Mm -hmm. And then we had two tracks left so that Dusty could do vocals until she was happy or Leonard, whatever. So I did probably about three or four weeks with Keith and then I was deemed safe, I suppose, and, and I knew enough about what was going on. And the very first rock session that I got was Traffic, and it was finishing off the Mr. Fantasy album, the very first album. And um, again, it was like suddenly stepping into, you know, from the, the bright lights and session guys and all very straight with union breaks and everything. Suddenly you're there at night, you're in the dark with a few candles and loads of their friends just sitting around in the studio rolling splits and just a different world, you know. And that, again, like the Henderson, that stuck with me, this way of working. It was just like, wow, this is like being at home in the living room. Although uh-huh. they can hold 80 people. You know? Yeah. It was like, wow, this is a whole different world, you know, because I haven't seen any of that for the first yeah. few weeks that I was there. So it was, um, and we did, you know, I did Heavenly in your mind, and, 
Mr. Fantasy and various things that um, were on the first album. Then I did nearly all of the second Traffic 2 album. So I got to know, I mean, again, Chris Wood, what a sweetheart, you know, lovely guy. Jim Capaldi, I went on to do a lot of albums with him when he was a solo artist. Um, Dave Mason, very sh sussed, shrewd guy, much more into, in a way, the, the you know, he could see the commercial side of things. Most of the stuff he wrote was more commercial. And then there was Steve, you know, who was, you know, he was 17. Uh, he's a year older than me, so he was probably just 18 when he was doing the first Traffic album. He'd already been on the road for five years with Spencer Davies. Crazy. It is crazy. You know, people now, crazy. they... They leave school, they go to university, they don't even start their life until they're 25 or something. That's right. He's 15 years old singing I'm a Man. Oh. <laughs> That's true. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> so um, that's that was kind of, um, you know, again, an introduction to, into that world. Yeah. Wrote, you know, roadies, because Keith Grant and, and I mean, Glyn Johns, for that matter, they, they were very anti-drugs. Hmm. But when you're on those kind of sessions, you know, if, if um, the roadies would often come kind of come over to the area because you were the tape of, you know, you had all the machines, there was no remotes or anything. So you were running everything and they'd come over and, and kind of give you the odd hit on a spliff or mm -hmm. one day you went up, we'd been doing ridiculously long hours and one of the roadies said, you, you know, and I was like, you know, nodding off. He goes, oh. have this, you know, and gave me some speed and all those. <laughs> my introduction into the kind of rock and roll world sure sure yeah. yeah you and steve uh formed kind of a partnership there for a while right and you worked on his first solo album was it vacant chair which is my one of my favorite songs ever yeah. certainly of that album guy that told you to make this the drums sound like blamage was that that song <laughs> yeah well it's strange it was a strange project because um steve hadn't worked since since you know the traffic had ended and he'd also got i think he'd been through a kind of smack phase or whatever mm. but he was a bit messed up and he'd taken a year or two or more years out um yeah i think about three years in fact and um in in '76, um, I got a phone call from from the island office saying that Steve wants to put this song down, and it was actually a song. It was something like "Walk Me to the Lilies" or something. It was a it was a country song, mm. 
So we go into the studio and I mean, I vaguely knew Steve obviously from the previous era and I'd seen him around Ireland. Um, and he'd brought in his neighbor, a guy called Mark Malamande. That's it. Who did actually go on to have success with Marianne Faithful. Um, but I mean, he knew nothing about making records, but he was the link it seemed to getting Steve in the studio. Steve, I don't think he really wanted to, to know, you know, he yeah. was quite happy on his farm in Gloucestershire right. um, and just living his life. Um, and he's only about 26, 27 at this point anyway, you know, he'd had a life already. Yeah. Um, and Mark Miller Monday, and, and initially, um, we never got what we to Liz. We tried it various different ways. Um, we never actually got it. But I remember at the end of that day, um, Steve saying, well, you know, I've got a few tracks, you know, because he's always very quiet, quite shy, mm. very soft kind of voice. He said, well, I've got a few songs that I've been working on, you know. So maybe we could regroup, but not in, like, we were in London, underneath Ireland offices, you know, which is, mm. again, the wrong place. Mm -hmm. He said, maybe we could go to, because um, he had a beautiful studio in his house, which we never used, strangely, I don't know why. Um, maybe we could go to Chipping Norton, which was this wonderful studio out in Oxfordshire. Uh, in an old schoolhouse he said maybe we could all meet up there and i could put down these you know these songs mm -hmm. so mark Millamandi kind of came along because he was the link but he, i say he had no idea about making records he'd never made a record mm -hmm. in his life yeah. um and we had this brilliant band at the time and alan spenner on bass who was from kokomo and neil hubbard who was also from kokomo um i think we had uh, brother james who, who was a percussionist but worked with um, the Whalers at one point, and the guitarist ended up a junior. He ended up with the Whalers, but this mm. is you know, pre that. And yeah, Winwood just came in wearing a kind of duffel coat with a hood up. And the Hammond was set up so it's facing the wall, you know, so when he's there with his hood up and everything, mm -hmm. he's, he's backs to everybody. Right. He doesn't actually have to deal with anyone if he doesn't want to. Right. And he'd play these songs and we cut these amazing songs there. I mean, we, we were only there probably seven days and we cut all the stuff that, that Steve had and Blackwell came out <coughs> to have a listen. And while all the band, everyone kind of screwed, pissed off to the pub, we played through the tracks and Chris said, wow, this is great, man. And then said, you should re-record it with Andy Newmark and Willie Weeks, mm -hmm. which, I think for both Steve and I, it was a real slap. It's like, wow, you like it, but you want it re-recorded, you know? Uh -huh. he, again, Chris could see, get this rhythm section, Andy Newmark, who's a great drummer, you know, and Willie Weiss, get them in with Steve, forget everybody else. Mm -hmm. And that's what we did. We eventually ended up going into Basin Street um, uh, in Studio Two and, and recording the whole album again with that setup. But the only track that we couldn't improve on was Vacant Chair. Yeah. We kept that from the you know original recording, but yeah, it was it was actually um, I guess probably a year after that, and Mark Malamande had had some success working with Marion Faithful, mm -hmm. and I think it was on those sessions. Um, it might have been Steve, but I think it was Marion Faithful. But yeah, we were out at Chipping Norton again, you know, musicians there and everything, and that's what he said. You know, can you make this? I want the drums to sound like Blamange. <laughs> What does that mean? <laughs> you know, pink lemonade or blue lemonade. Right. 
<laughs> um, he was short-lived. I mean, he did have this bit of success with um, with Marion Faithful, um, and Steve's album came out, but he he didn't last long at Island. He, you know, it was probably eighteen months, two years total, and then he he was gone. But he he was a rich kid from from he would say he was uh, Steve's neighbour. Yeah. The weird thing about the album, because I mean, there's a, a lot of stuff I really like about the album, but it's all to Steve. I don't think he was really happy with it. I have no idea. We've never had this conversation, but definitely getting vocals out of him and getting it finished was actually quite tricky. I mean, it took about six months. There's only six songs on it. Yeah. And it was hard to finish. And when they did a big, there was a program about a year ago, a year ago over here, um, which was kind of the story of, 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 of Steve. And, um, that album was almost glossed over. I mean, it really kind of, they showed you really? the cover, but then they went on to Ark yeah. of the Diver. Yeah. So I don't know if it's an album that he, he wasn't pleased with or what, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Although we had quite a good relationship kind of before that and recording that, definitely since that, it all, he, he definitely faded away, as it were. You know, I, I certainly wouldn't be on his list of people to probably ring anymore. Yeah. Uh, not because, I mean, I don't be, believe that I'm difficult to work with, but I do try to be honest and speak my mind. So if something isn't right, I'm more likely to gently say, yeah. you know, this isn't right, <laughs> rather yeah. than going with it for the sake right. of it. And, I'm curious watching people like Robert and Steve come into so much success in the mid eighties doing really fantastic pop music, but that is so it's much safer probably yeah. than the music that you helped them make back in the beginning. What are your thoughts when you see those two in particular, you know, get vaulted into the, into the stratosphere and become so popular doing that kind of music. What are your thoughts on that? Do you well, think this is great? I love these guys. They deserve it. Or do you think, wow, that's just not in the no, spirit I, of what we were doing. I was really pleased with Robert. Cause I think, you know, they, the, the, the whole power station thing just came together quite naturally. Yeah. Um, and then they had, you know, addicted to love. I just thought it was a great video. And a really yeah. track. Um, so I was kind of pleased that it finally, you know, he, you know, not only just recoup, but had actually moved up a gear. Mm -hmm. So I was really pleased about Robert, even if it was, you know, okay, those previous albums, I love a lot of that stuff. And that's, that was his heart. But if you're then, you know, we're all older, you've moved into something else. The eighties was a tough decade anyway, yeah. as far as I'm concerned, musically. Um, so I was kind of pleased for Robert. With Steve, I just thought he'd sold out, um, to mm. be honest. It was a completely different vibe for, for, with, with, with Steve. When he brought out, um, that first kind of pop album and, and even did a video where he's kind of dancing and stuff. When you see a chance or um, yeah, higher yeah. love. Yeah. All yeah. That. yeah. It was just like, yeah, it's cool. It's Steve. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. When you look at the, the traffic albums yeah, and there was about five of them in, you know, and he did a couple of other projects. Um, Blind yeah. Faith. and Yeah. Yeah. And, and he also had some kind of um, real mismatch of people from South America, I think, I can't remember what it's called now, but I remember seeing that gig in London. And then you had Spencer Davis, you know, you look at this career, what the guy had done, it's like, wow. I mean, he's special, Steve. Yeah, he's he is. Got the most amazing voice. Incredible uh, keyboard player. <clears throat> great guitarist, even a yeah. great drummer. I mean, that's the other thing I didn't know he could do all this stuff. 
which I found out when we did his first solo album. He's playing drums. I mean, you know, bizarrely, he put the piano down first without a click huh. and then goes out and plays drums to it, you know, which is completely on its head as far as yeah. I understand that the way yeah. it worked. But, you know, it kind of worked with a lot of fiddling around. Um, but yeah, the 80s for me, I just thought, wow, this isn't really Steve. As far. And I still don't think that is Steve for me. No. My thing of Steve is, is definitely the previous 15 yeah. years. Yeah. Um, and I love what he does. I mean, every so often I see posts up something where he's sitting at his house and he's, he's just at the piano or the hammer and he's singing this track and it's just like, wow, man. Yeah. He still sounds amazing, you know. His yeah. voice is still great. I mean, he's, what, 71 or two or something. Something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I wasn't particularly enamored with the, you know, but then I yeah. had a real problem with the 80s generally. I, I kind of hated a lot of the music in the 80s. <laughs> I hated a lot of the technology. I believe um, it. And the way everything was, you know, we, we were getting into what we're doing now with, you know, snapping everything to grid, drum machines, yeah. drums that sounded bigger than, you know, life itself, all the right. keyboard, brass keyboards, you know, I mean, yeah. it was just, I had a real problem with the 80s. Yeah. And I was about to leave the business in 86. I mean, I was, I was out. Yeah. And then a chance meeting kept me in with Talk Talk, really, right. I mean, 13 years with Mark, but that was by luck. Yeah, I was, I was leaving. Yeah, I. Uh, that's the next thing I want to talk to you about. Um, one thing, it's interesting. I saw Steve Winwood in. Con I've only seen him once, and it was probably about 15, 16, 17 years ago here in Denver, Colorado, where I live. And it's it was interesting because he didn't play any of the songs from the eighties. Uh, he played one. He played "Back in the High Life" on a little mandolin. And that was it. Everything else was traffic, Spencer Davis, you know, yeah. blind faith, all that stuff. And I just that's one of the reasons why I want to talk to him so much, because I feel like here's a guy who, I mean, his 70s, the traffic and everything stuff is legendary. The 80s was what really propelled him into making a lot of money, being very popular, getting selling millions of records. But that's now the period of his career that he chooses to ignore. And so I just think that's so interesting that you have the power to ignore the whole reason why half the people in your audience are there, you know? So anyway, I just, that kind of mind frame, I think is really interesting. He's obviously got taste. Yes. Well, that's true too. <laughs> yeah. That taste may have been questionable in the eighties for you. I love that stuff, but I like the, I love the traffic stuff too. I just, everything he does, I'm so curious about it. It was so uh, experimental. Yes. Okay, I promise we're going to get to Talk Talk here in a second. I got two more to ask you before that. I uh, We should talk about Roxy Music for a minute because you worked on the Manifesto album, I believe, which is probably my second favorite Roxy Music album after Country Life. Are you ready for
I thought it was really interesting. There's a theme here I'm noticing that with all the big bands you're working with, whether it's the Stones or it's Led Zeppelin or Roxy Music, there's one guy whose <laughs> ego is on another planet compared to everybody else in the band. And you're gravitating toward the really nice, easy to work with guys because they are, you know, they get along. Get but there's always that. one who's out there <laughs> and who's bigger than the rest. And Brian Ferry is that guy. Well, the thing about Roxy is that I'd worked with, um, I mean, I loved early Roxy, I must admit. I thought the early Roxy music albums were fantastic. And I'd worked a lot with Brian Eno when he'd left Roxy. We, we, we did three or four albums together when he was working with Robert Fripp and mm -hmm. we did like, Here Come the Warm Jets and No Pussyfoot in. So good. All these experimental things that he was playing around with as well. Like he had, he brought in a, a 20th century steel band, which was like a 30 piece steel band playing classical music. That was another of Eno's mm -hmm. projects. Um, but I, and I worked a lot with um, Andy Mackay, the sax player. Mm -hmm. We did a couple of solo albums together. So I'd kind of worked with other members of the band and it was, that's how I got brought in. You know, the band had split up and they wanted to get back together. And I think it was one of the conditions from Andy, definitely, that, you know, that if we do this, let's bring in Phil, you know. Um, because I think they they all needed people on, on their side, as it were, if you know what I mean, rather than Brian just take over, which mm -hmm. he's going to do anyway. Uh, so, yeah, we set up at... Um, Ridge Farm, which at the time didn't have a control room or, uh, or a main studio, it just had a big studio, it was a barn. And um, I think I described him, yeah, there was Phil, Phil Manzanera had just broken his leg. So he was there, I said, I think I put things like, you know, on guitar and broken leg. Um, Alan Spenner on bass and humor. Mm -hmm. um, we brought in Paul Carrick. Mm, I love Paul. Mace, yeah. And then Brian on keyboards and ego. Um, <laughs> But the thing is, you know, it was a big, big house there and this barn and we all lived in the house. Except Brian, you know, who lived kind of in a different building on in the grounds. Mm -hmm. And I mean, Brian will always be Brian. He'll always be the rock star, I suppose. You know, um, I don't dislike him. I mean, I just don't. I never really rated him that good a singer. I mean, it mm -hmm. depends what you, you know, what you're going for. When I, I mean, I work with Harry Nilsson and and people that are just amazing singers, you know what I mean? So they got Brian, yeah, okay, he can, you know, he can definitely, he's a good front man for the band. Mm -hmm. um, and then where Roxy went with, you know, Avalon and all these rather overproduced, mm -hmm. kind of cold to me, clinical records. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, uh, yeah, so Manifesto, it was fun because it was very experimental. Everyone just turned up everyone had ideas that we basically jammed, you know, we didn't have 10 songs that were all sorted, ready to go. We just had ideas. But with that combination of Spenner, Carrick, uh, I can't remember the drummer's name, Manzanera, Mackay, you know, um, and Brian, it was just a great environment to just try out ideas yeah. and you're in a barn in the countryside, you know, so, there wasn't the clock on the wall, as it were, you know. So I had a lot of fun, mate, you know, do, doing the, the backing tracks. But yeah, Brian, I, I, yeah, he's, he's, um, he might have mellowed in age, but okay. uh, I, I guess I just hate ego. Yeah. Um, 
because there's no reason for it. You know, if you're lucky enough to get in, you know, into this business in the first place, great. If you're lucky enough to then have a success, because I mean, there's so many people I've worked with that I think are amazing that have never managed to, to get through. I think you should have a little bit more restraint um, and just yeah. realize that actually I've been really lucky. Yeah. And yeah, I'm good at what I do. I've made a lot of money, but just keep it under control as everyone else that was there did. You know, Alan Spenner played, you know, Alan Spenner at 18 years old was playing in the Grease Band at, at um, Woodstock yeah. with Joe Cocker. Crazy. You know, and yet, here we are, you know, whatever it was, 15 years later, you know, we're at an East part of Roxy. But Alan wasn't just like, you know, do you know who I am? Right, you know I mean? right. It, it, yeah. So I find that whole attitude just bizarre. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't matter who it is. I think it was, uh, <laughs> it was a funny line. In the, I think it was you. I can't remember who said it. Maybe it was you. Something to the effect of like, uh, well, what do you think, Brian, male model that you are? Yeah. Or something. <laughs> That's Alan Spenner, yeah. He Is that to, him? Alan was amazing. I mean, he was a complete, I mean, he was a sweetheart. Um, uh -huh. he, he, he was a wind-up merchant, you know? Yeah. And um, he, he, he did have this thing of finding people's kind of slight vulnerability uh -huh. and then just like going for it, you know? So he, he, he can be, I, I know people that find him, well, he's dead now, but I find, who found him really disturbing. Mm. But I'd known him, Ever since um, '67 at Olympic, he's one of the people I met when he was doing Joe Cocker, and um, I always got on really well with him. I mean, I shared a room with him when we were on the road in the '80s with um, Murray Head. Um, uh -huh. The guy was a sweetheart. I mean, just a great bass player. Um, but yeah, he would wind Brian up, and he would yes. often say that. It's a, well, male model though you may be, what do you think about <laughs> I love that. Just, that was great. Such a great put, put down in a way, but nicely no kidding. done. Right, right. <laughs> oh, I love that. Um, okay, I want to ask you about Redbox. I've had Simon Folsom Clark on here. Yeah. I think the two first two 
Redbox albums are two of, especially the first one, Circle in the Square, is just one of the most amazing pieces of creativity that I've ever heard. Every song on that album, I know you don't like the 80s, and, and I, if you had come up the way you did, I would understand, but can you give it up for that album? Every song sounds like it's from another part of the world. No, they, and it's all like, from the mind of this Simon. He's a clever writer. Um, I guess um, Redbox is one of, you know, you've always got that kind of project where it all goes horribly wrong, I suppose. Uh -huh. and, and Redbox for me is, is that, partly because I didn't do the Circle and Square. I spent three years kind of getting that band. They, what, they came to me, they were all at university. Um, it was a friend of a friend of a friend thing. Mm -hmm. And I got to work with them. I did demos with them. And then as different members of the band left to go off and pursue their degrees or whatever they had, it ended up with just two people left, which was Simon and uh, Julian. And mm -hmm. um, so I brought in Simon Edwards. I brought in Ginny Clee. I basically put the band together and got managed because of Max Hole, who I knew, managed to get them signed um, to WEA. And we went in and did um, Living in Domes which I still think, I mean, our version and Saskatchewan, they're just fantastic uh, records. Um, so we went in and did Living in Domes. And I mean, it was an event. I mean, I can remember that really clearly, just being in the studio recording that, you know, and uh, we had all the lyrics. We brought in about, I don't know, about 12 people to do the chanting. And we had like lyrics and stuff all around the walls. It was an event. I mean, we just were having a ball and um, we deliver it to the record company. Of course, this is the eighties. And um, Max Hole goes, well, it's, it's too aggressive. It's like, really? What do you mean it's too aggressive? Yeah. 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 And <clears throat> as you read in the book, probably, but I mean, Simon, I'd said to Simon beforehand, I mean, we knew each other. We were good mates for quite a long time. And I said, look, you know, um, record companies, you know, A&R guys, they're, they're just to screw you over in a way. You know, I mean, you, you find very few A&R guys that you, that you can trust. Um, that's why I, I hold out for people like Chris Blackwell as being a great head of a record company because he loved music and he could make records. He knew the process. A lot of these people that run major record companies, you know, especially now with Universal, is even the pits because they bought everybody else. Yeah. And they don't, half of them don't even know. They're just typing numbers, you know, they don't just know. Business people. Work. Yeah, it's the business empire. Simon and I had had this chat the night before with the manager and I said, you know, just be careful when we go in for this meeting because we got called in and it was obviously, you know, something wasn't right. Mm -hmm. And um, at the meeting, you know, Max Hole, basically, I, you know, I was the one talking because I was the producer and the manager said a few things, but everyone else is very quiet or Simon's very quiet. And at one point, Max just said, so blah, 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 you know, and I said, well, oh. He goes, well, what do you think, Simon? And instead of Simon at that point, just kind of going, well, I, I think Phil and um, Ian was the manager. I think they've kind of nailed it, you know. Mm -hmm. Instead, he said, I don't know, Max, what do you think? Mm. And Max then said, right, could you leave the room, Phil? And then I got fired, you know. Yeah, it, yeah. it hurt. It, I mean, yeah. it must have been after three or four years of putting this whole thing together. Yeah. And then it brought in Chris Hughes, who's fine. You know, he's a very much a pop producer of the 80s. And you can't fault him for making pop records like Tears for Fears and things like that. But it transpired later that Max Hole managed Chris Hughes. Uh, so he was bringing in somebody who he was going to get 20% off anyway. Mm -hmm. 
somebody who was going to make a pop record rather than, you know, and yeah. so they went with it. And Simon was then trapped in this kind of deal. He was very unhappy about a lot of the stuff, but he was trapped in it. And then the day that his contract ran out, which was about 92 or 91, he phoned me up and said, uh, I'm out of the contract with, you know, WA, Warner Brothers, you know, let's do something. Um, so we got back together and we did this album called Spa. But um, I just finished the laughing stock. Mm-hmm. Talk, talk. Uh, my head was all over the place and I needed a kind of therapy album. Um, yeah. So Simon and I got together and we did this. I, I love the Spa project, but I mean, Simon's brilliant. You know, he's a yes. great, great writer. You know, all those songs, I mean, those those melodies, those, all those counter hooks and things, they just go round and round in your head for America. I mean, once you you hear that, it's four days of this thing in your head. Um, and, and I just, you know, we had a lot in common, you know, the whole Saskatchewan thing with um, Buffy St. Marie and the American Indians and the whole, you know, all the things we were trying to do, it yeah. all made sense to me, you know. Yeah. And um, yeah, we had a ball until we got to the point of like actually doing it for real yeah. in a sense. And then it all, for me, went horribly wrong. I mean, I know yeah. some some success, but it didn't last, you know. He's, yeah. You know, he's he's back. I mean, Redbox has kind of reformed about two years ago. And they're kind of big in Poland now. Yeah, it's crazy. Poland loves Redbox. I, um, yeah, I talked to Simon uh, five years ago, maybe four or five years ago, and um, heard the story. I just, I, his mind, the music he makes, it's unlike anyone else's. And I just think, where do you get this stuff? It's so interesting. Speaking of which, speaking of uh, Chris, in particular, you mentioned in the book your horror supergroup, and I don't know what that means because you have Chris Hughes on there, you have Paul McCartney, Roger Daltrey. Um, who? What is a horror supergroup? Phil, Phil, um, drummer Phil. Whatever Phil Collins. Name. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I suppose it's a little unfair, but well, you know, the kind of all-time worst collection of characters that you could have in a room. <laughs> really because i have to admit i had uh i talked to chris hughes a year ago and he couldn't have been nicer to me I know. and chris has tried to work with me quite a few times uh he's phoned me up over the last 20 years um asking me to do things with him we work very differently uh, i did work with him in, in the early 90s um robert plant was doing an album which i think it was 21 palms came from yes 29, 29 29 palms and they'd been through about three or four engineers. Um, and eventually I get the call, you know, through Robert. Um, so I go in and Chris and I just work so differently. You know, I'm much more with Robert, you know, like set, set, set the mic up, get a sound in the room, let's go. You know, whereas Chris Hughes, it's all from that whole 80s hang up. It's all about precision and, you know, and, um, you know, I last, well, I lasted a week before I said, I don't want to do this anymore. And then Robert said, oh, you've got to stay, man. You know, so I did another week. Um, <laughs> but it was just tough because Chris Hughes, I remember one day he had a hi-hat and he'd say things like, right, do you prefer this? And then he'd move it like two milliseconds. <laughs> or do you prefer this? You know, Well, if you're doing that for like 30 minutes, I can probably have an opinion. But when you're doing it for hours, after a while, it's very hard to hear. And I couldn't give a shit anymore. Yeah. I mean, I don't, 
I don't even mic hi-hats, and that's partly because of Chris Hughes. Yeah. If I don't mic it, you can't change where it is. You know what I mean? It is yeah. where they're going to play it. And the funny thing is, and I mean, it's a real, immediately a contradiction, but I hated all that. But it was only around the same time that I was working, or I'd just finished working with um, Talk Talk, where we were moving things. And we had, you know, lots of tape machines all synced together. We could offset them with SMPTE code. So it's like working today with 100 tracks of Pro Tools mm -hmm. where you can move anything. But we were doing it in, in an analog world because it was like 1987. Um, and we would move things like, I mean, less than a millisecond. But when you're sitting there listening to that for 10 hours, mm. you suddenly can hear it. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. The complete opposite to what I was going through with Chris Hughes. But no, I mean, Chris Hughes and I, we just worked too, too differently for me to, to ever really want to volunteer and go in the studio with him. Okay. Um, I think he's mellowed again. I think he's become a lot easier um, than he was. In the 80s, he was God. You know, he did such big, successful albums yeah. and, and, and spent fortunes making a record, you know, weeks, months, mm -hmm. 100 grand was cheap. You know? yeah. And I always came from a, a completely different thing. I wanted to work fast, you know. Yeah. Uh, not slap it down at all, but just get the vibe, get the yeah. guys in the room playing live, get the sounds, go for it. You know, that yeah. whole yeah. 60s, 70s way of working, which is why the 80s for me was tough, because suddenly that isn't a way of working anymore. Mm -hmm. Now it's even worse, which is kind of why I really yeah. stopped. Um, but no, I'm sure, I mean, you know, I'm sure Chris is lovely. Um, just that he and I, we're coming at things from. Yeah. Okay. I was curious what that meant. Your horror supergroup was made oh, up yeah, of such legends that I thought, yeah. is horror a bad thing or a good thing? I can't tell. As musicians, fantastic. You know, I'm not faulting the musicianship. It's more to do with personalities. Okay. Phil, okay. Phil Collins, pain in the ass. McCartney, double pain in the ass. Really? Oh, yeah. I mean, he's an embarrassment now. You know, it, you can't you can't live on. You know, he's written some great stuff. Obviously, back in the Beatles days, but you know, you cannot live off that forever. So he's made some terrible albums. I mean, really, just yeah. terrible albums, terrible songs. But everyone around who, who worked with Paul, you become a yes man. So everyone go, oh, great idea, Paul. You know, that's really good. Rather than saying, actually, like a Lennon, you need a Lennon. Yeah. You're going, hang on a minute, Paul, that's crap. Yeah. Yeah. No one will do that. So yeah. Paul gets away with making these terrible records. He's got a very strange kind of ego. Uh, Phil Collins, what a pain in the ass. Maybe a great drummer. Uh, I worked with him once. But, I mean, what yeah. makes him a pain? Oh, again, it, I mean, he's, you know, because it all went wrong for him and everyone ended up hating him. Yeah. I mean, this is going back, you know, the book was written, you know, in a way, a lot of that was written 20 years ago. Sure. Um, it took about six years to come out. It came out in 2010, but I mean, it was written in the mid nineties and then revamped and then put away for a couple of years and all of that. Um, so I, a lot of that was judged on how those people were probably when I was writing about it in the nineties, early 2000s. Um, but, you know, Phil Collins was everywhere. You know, he was the face of the age. Sure was. Whether it was solar stuff, movie star, Genesis, Genesis, you know, whatever. you couldn't get away. From, he was, and he almost had, he was too big, you know, and everyone yeah. ended I up. I think that's why he retreated. Yeah, 
because everyone was kind of went, oh, not Phil Collins again, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he could now be a very lovely guy, you know, but um, yeah, I, I just have a problem. I have a real problem with McCartney. I think it's really sad what he's become. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw him live in um, Buenos Aires about 10 years ago. Wow. And it was stunning. Yeah. You know, he was just amazing. So yeah. I mean, it's got nothing to do with the you know, with his ability to play. Right. It's, it's it's more to do with, you know, all this stuff. Yeah. You know? Thumbs up. Yeah, yeah. Okay. When he played um, this stadium, there must have been like 60,000 people, if not more. Um, and um, whether he was playing acoustic, piano, the bass on a few things, his vocals were good. You couldn't fault him. No. But then he stands like an idiot, just kind of going. <laughs> uh, 80,000 people go mad, you know. Uh-huh. Like, oh, come on, Paul. You know? What's the so, Daltrey you, issue? Oh, go ahead. Finish with Paul. Oh, no, no I, I just say with Paul, you just need it. Lennon needs to still be here for Paul to do anything yeah. credible, I think. You know, they they were a good balance for each other because Lennon could be a bit off to, you know, left field. Yep. Or, yep. Bit difficult and McCartney yep. always wants to write a love song, you know, salty and sweet. Yeah, and you get yep. them together and they were genius. I mean, nothing compares to, I mean, at the time in the 60s, I was a Stones fan, not particularly a Beatles fan. Um, since, I mean, for the last 40 years, you know, it's just changed where the Stones to me now, I find a bit like a cabaret band and the Beatles are just stunning their songs and just how genius it all is i mean great lyrics sense of humor great core you know the yeah. band you know yeah. but you need you know you need um yeah you need a certain chemistry and i think lennon mccartney had that chemistry yeah. um and since lennon's gone and i mean lennon did some great stuff on his own he also did some pretty suspect stuff right but McCartney, yeah, I think he's just a bit lost. <laughs> Fascinating. These opinions are so good. I love this. <laughs> so what's the, what's, what's the, well, you put them in the book. I mean, if, somebody, if you were going to get in trouble, you would have gotten it by now. Yeah. So what's the Daltrey problem? No, Daltrey, I, I get it. I, I mean, he, you know, I, I, actually, that was probably a bit unfair on Daltrey. But I mean, yeah, the reason why I'm in got into into music was seeing the who when they were the high numbers but in 1962 or something i saw them at the watford trade union hall when i was like 12 years old or 13 or something and they just blew me away and i'm just standing there and this is like in an era when it seemed phenomenally loud but it probably couldn't have been because you know it was then and probably a box column and a few amps but i remember just standing down the front just going I want some of this, whatever yeah. it is, you know. Yeah. Um, so they were the spark that <clears throat> actually made me want to get into music, really, was The Who. Oh. Uh, Roger, no, Roger's, um, he's just a, a real, still a bit of a lad, you know what I mean? Yeah. He'll, hit, he'll hit people if he's, you know, that whole thing of like, ah, you know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But him and um, Townsend fought all the time. Yep. It's a bit like Sting and... Um, Stuart Copeland. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those two, you know. I mean, you you get a great chemistry out of it, but I mean, some of that stuff is outrageous. I mean, cracking ribs and beating each other up before <laughs> gigs. You know, it's just like, come on, guys, yeah. Get a grip. But sometimes, um, you know, especially with somebody like Sting, I suppose that, that the only way around it is to go, you know, 
<laughs> That's right. <laughs> Just knock them out. Yeah, Talk about big egos, Sting. Yeah. I would imagine. But no, Roger George. I still, I, I think he's absolutely brilliant, especially you know back in the day. But he still has a lot of that. You know, it's like when I worked with Robert, I was really surprised at how good his voice still is. Mm. You know, and hearing the stuff that he's been doing over the last you know ten yeah. years, you know, yeah. he's, he's still got it. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let's get into talk talk. This <laughs> is uh, so. I don't know if you knew this. We're yesterday was the two year anniversary since Mark died. Yeah, and um, he has always been had always been my my dream interview because I just want to know how that mind works. And so your book was so enlightening in that in that way, especially at that time, the Spirit of Eden and Laughing Stock, and then his solo album. The thing that I I want to understand first of all. Did it seem like when they started those albums, were did songs even exist, or were they just bare bones of an idea that might turn into something? Well, it turns out. I mean, if if you'd asked me that, you know, maybe you know, a year or two years ago, I would have said no. We had nothing. Yeah. Because when when they came in the studio, apart from Lee having drum patterns, you know, on both Laughterstock and Spirit of Eden, he had these six kind of drum patterns. Um, but to me, that's all we had. I never heard any demos. Um, no one ever talked about a song. Uh, it was all experimental, including the lengths of sections and things. Everything was wide open. So to me, there were no songs. But then when Mark died, uh, Tim Free Screen did post something online which was a, a demo of a track off Spirit of Eden. So it appears that obviously Tim and Mark did I think I remember that, yeah. They must have had something, but it was never referred to in the studio and never, nothing was ever played. And, um, and we basically didn't really talk to the musicians that came in to play anyway. Um, so yeah, I mean, from my point of view, it's very much like the book, you know, we, we they'd been off on tour for you know over a year with the color spring album mm -hmm. and this was only about six months after that had all finished um and i'd seen them at the hammersmith odeon um and it just blew me away i mean i yeah. just wow you know and, and this is you gotta back to this thing of i'm about to leave the business yeah the 80s would you know i had a few successes in the 80s but it was a tough i just didn't like the majority of the music or the production more than the music and um I saw them and I definitely came away from that place going, you know, that's who I should be. Yeah. I kind of work with a band like that. Yeah. And then I bumped into Tim Priest Green by chance and I actually congratulated on Color Spring because it was my kind of album. Of I love that album. <clears throat> I just said, wow, you know, because Tim and I'd worked together in the past. Uh, again, he comes from a real pop world. You know? mm -hmm. And again, when we were working, um, I left the project because it was just too pop. You know, I just, he was doing tight fit or something. You know, young, they were basically kind of male models that were, mm -hmm. in the real sense, they were not in the Brian Ferry right. sense. They were male models that had been kind of put together with a couple of girls and yeah. one of these creative bands, you know. Right. Um, um, and Tim always takes everything he does very seriously. So he was, you know, taking these projects, these sessions very seriously. And I just couldn't get it, you know what I mean? I'm just thinking, yeah. So we did work on some stuff, but basically I just kept walking out of things. 
Um, and then I bumped into him and just said, Colour Spirit, the album, congratulations, what a genius album. Um, and again, you know, as I left, I went, oh, man, I like, that's the kind of band I should be working with, which was more thinking aloud, I think, than anything. And then, you know, three or four months later, he phoned me up and said, you know, are you interested? So I met Mark and then we headed to the studio. But from my point of view, we had nothing, you know, with these drum pans. Yeah. And there was no discussion either about, you know, making it at one o'clock in the morning. You know, this comment to Mark about one o'clock in the morning, November 67. Uh-huh. That was there in his head, but nothing was ever talked about. It's just all of a sudden I can't use equipment that's past 1968. Mm-hmm. And Lee is wandering around, you know, putting up, because they had all this stuff from the from the from their stage show. So everything basically just got dumped at Wessex. I mean, it was a big room, it held like 80 musicians. So these vans arrived with just gear, you know. There's drums and harmoniums and all the stuff, you know. So when this was all unpacked and in the room, and Lee sets himself up where we thought the drums might be good, and then he finds the lights, they used to use triggered lights. Mm-hmm. So he sets them up around his kit just for a bit of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, they're at sound activated. Mm-hmm. And um, then he just, you know, as the day goes on, he's just turning out more and more lights, you know, and he gets the, the studio room, the big room, kind of how he thinks it would be great to be. And then he walked into the control room, which is pretty bright. He goes, wow, it's very bright in here, isn't it? Um, hang on a minute. And then he drives off home and comes back with an oil projector from the yeah. 60s. Yeah. <laughs> Hooks that up, you know, and goes, what, what about this, guys? You know, and turns out all the lights, and there we are. And yeah. that's where we stayed. And, I mean, when that happened, I just thought this would be a day or two or it's an hour, you know what I mean? Right. I never thought that for nine months we were going to be in this room. In this oil painting thing. Yeah. yeah and we had so little light that... Um, I mean, we weren't using any EQ on, off the desk, so that didn't really matter. But, you know, you needed torches and things for the patch bay. And if the maintenance guy, if he had to come and fix something, because you couldn't turn the lights on, he'd come in with torches and, and fix things under torchlight. It was wow. genius, you know. I mean, yeah. It all stayed like that. Um, yeah. And then once we had these drum tracks down and then, you know, Paul added some bass and Martin Ditchin was around with percussion, Tim would... You know, be out there with a big keyboard or Hammond and Mark would be on piano and guitar, you know, and these things. And then once we got, I suppose, you know, two months in, three months in, and we had a basic structure of stuff, but it was still very basic. I mean, we they left gaps on the on the tape, you know, they said, right, so we've got an intro section, so we'll leave two minutes. Let's start the track here, you know. And then at the end of that four minute track, it's like, well, there's going to be another interlude. So let's leave another minute and a half, you know? So we had mm-hmm. on tape all these gaps that were going to be filled with something later. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we just started inviting in musicians, you know, who would come in um, and it was all free form. You know, no one was told anything. They weren't allowed, they weren't told, well, they weren't even spoken to most of them. They never yeah. came in. The- never came in the control room they were just led in by the tape up or my assistant you know with a torch and yeah. set up somewhere wow. mic positioning you know fiddle uh-huh. about okay you know track sent you know and yeah. we would eight tracks everyone that that survived um you know if we did one or two takes and it was obviously complete rubbish we would just say thank you you know and get rid of them 
but if it looked like it was promising we would do a maximum of eight takes so that would take you know like most of the songs were six seven minutes so you'd do an hour of recording and then they would go away and we would then spend whatever i mean it might take six six eight hours to go yeah. through listen to everything and select what you were going to keep wow. and then we got into this thing which very much was mark of where it was going to be on the track you know because it what it may have been played there but mark would go wow it's such a cool thing but it it should be there you know mm -hmm. so we would start offsetting these machines like you say, like you do with Pro Tools now, cut and paste, but we yeah. would do it all in real time. Yeah, manually. And we had five 24-track machines, slaves, so that yeah. we could fill one with percussion, one with vocals, one with keyboard. You know, we just had all these slaves. Yeah. And the final mastering was on a 32-track Mitzi and 48-track analog. And these all synced together, and we would offset and move things about. And that's what we did for, you know, eight or nine months. Crazy. One of the anecdotes in the book that I thought was really telling is you were saying that at one point, Tim Freeze Green trips over a guitar and the crash of the guitar hitting the ground. Mark liked that and wanted that, kept that in the song. Yeah, we, right? we yeah, he played this guitar part. And, and the thing is that Tim, you know, Tim's probably a very, a, a pretty cool um, pianist. And I mean, he's a good musician generally, but he's not really proficient with a guitar. You know, he can get uh -huh. stuff out of it, but it's not like he's, he's not, I don't see him really as being as a guitar player who, you know, you yeah. can throw anything at him and he can play it. So he was trying out some ideas and we'd recorded, you know, eight minutes or whatever. Um, and we did eight takes of this um, and then called him in. Okay, you know, and as he got up to come in, he, he caught the lead, guitar crashes to the floor, still turned on. We're still in record, big explosion. And when, when we come in, Mark goes, right, like, let's erase everything, just keep the explosion. And, and the thing is, when people say things like that, uh -huh. you kind of think they're joking, you know what I mean? But yeah. after being around Mark, I mean, I was around him for 13 years, but even on this project, which is the first one, um, after being around him for three months, you knew that he, he, he meant that, you know? Yeah, he had a plan. And Tim would say, yeah, I can agree with that. You know what I mean? like, so we just, we erased so, I mean, Laughing Stock was the one we erased most, but on yeah. Spirit Reading, we must have erased, I mean, 85% of everything Crazy. got erased. Crazy. And Laughing Stock um, in the 90s. Yeah. What you hear Amazing. is bare bones. Those are two of the, uh, I mean, you know this, you've mentioned several times in the book that those are the albums that you get asked about the most. They're, they're two of the most incredible works of art, not just pieces of music, but works of art ever. Um, I've had, I reached out to Tim Freeze Green a while ago to come on and he said he doesn't like talking about the past. And I had Paul Webb on here. Um, in fact, I interviewed him like a week or two before Mark died. Uh -huh. And uh, Paul didn't really want to talk about the time. Whenever I'd ask him talk talk questions, he would say, oh, I was just a bass player. He would kind of minimize it to just like being a hired hand, you know, yeah. didn't really want to get into it. We talked about the, um, the, rusted, Beth, man. the rusted man and the Beth Gibbons album that you worked yeah. on. And we talked about that stuff instead, O-Rang or Orange or however yeah. you say that. Um, there were a couple of things though that I wanted to ask you. You talk about the oil projector and the atmosphere in the room. Do you feel like 
whether it's them or Steve Winwood in traffic or whatever, do you feel like that creating that atmosphere is essential to finding the sound that they were looking for for that particular album? Well, I guess, I mean, partly, I say, because of my experience at Olympic and then Ireland being a very, the early days of Ireland, early 70s, um, being a, uh, I mean, drug fueled, it sounds a bit wrong, but, you know, a lot of spliff and a lot of dull lighting and yeah. taking mobiles and recording at houses and all that kind of stuff. It was about getting, you know, a great a kind of an atmosphere and lighting and everything. It all makes, it all has some effect, you know. Yeah. Um, if you're in a very bright room and it's all very clinical, like EMI used to be or air, mm-hmm. then obviously it puts everyone slightly, you know, you're aware of the red light when you're going to record. We never used any of that kind of stuff, you know. We never put the red light on because it just makes, you know, makes people even more nervous than they right. really are. So I think um, lighting <clears throat> and atmosphere in the studio does have a big effect, you know. So whether you have candles, incense, low lighting, you know, colored lighting, whatever, I think it does have an effect. The talk to stuff just kind of took that to an extreme, really, right. because um, having no lighting um, or, a, you know, a, a strobe in a clear yeah. plastic bucket, you know, which was a nightmare whenever that thing fired. <laughs> Because, I mean, that, that was another, you know, there was this kind of, it wasn't really a game, but it, the, the musicians, I feel, some musicians were, were treated quite harshly in a way. I mean, it's partly Mark and Tim's sense of, very, Mark had quite a dark sense of humour. Um, but I remember once when um, Martin Ditchen was <clears throat> playing a shaker and he was literally in pitch black. And it was early on um, in the process. He never asked again. And he just kind of went, is there any way I could get a bit of light? We said, sure, no problem. Tabot runs out, switches on the strobe. <laughs> That's the light he gets. <laughs> he's trying to do a, you know, a shaker in a particular rhythm, probably uh-huh. beats a minute, you know, and you've got this strobe flashing away. <laughs> and he stuck with it for a good few minutes. And then he said, I, okay, I'll do without the light, thanks. You know? <laughs> so I think, you know, it definitely had an effect on us all. Um, yeah. I realised... Um, I mean, A, it, it helped because you couldn't see anything. Yeah. You know, today when you have, you know, a Pro Tools rig and you've got a screen, you can see the timing of people and everything, which I don't agree with. I always push the screen away. I don't want to be watching it. I want to be listening. Right. But when you're in the dark, all you can do is listen. Mm-hmm. You can't see the guy playing this, you know, so you're not even getting off on watching, you know, um, Nigel Kennedy play violin. You know, you can, you're only hearing the result yeah. and it definitely makes you focus differently and if you're in that environment for that amount of time you are just lost in that album that sound right the position of things and the frequency of things everything else is is is, is a distraction but fortunately you can't see it <laughs> yeah yeah uh, so it had a it definitely had an effect i mean it had an adverse effect in some ways as well on on your head sure i could imagine because I think, you know, light, I never realized much about light deprivation. And you got to remember, I mean, it was more laughing stock that was the problem. But, you, you know, we were recording, you know, 11 o'clock in the morning till 11, 12 at night. <clears throat> in the winter months, you know, it's only getting light at about nine. Yeah. So you kind of get up, it's pretty murky. You know, on yeah. laughing stock, I literally lived 200 yards away from the studio. Uh-huh. 
um, because I'd moved out. So you just kind of wander down the road into the studio. Um, there was a woman there, Betty, the tea lady, who would make us all a cup of tea. And lights, 11 o'clock, lights are out, strobes, you know, the oil projectors on, we're in that world. And we stay in that world for the 12 hours. Yeah. You then come out, it's 11, 12 o'clock at night. It's pitch black. Right. You know, right. You go, I went back to my flat. You don't want to turn on all the lights, you know. Yeah. So we lived in this, yeah. in darkness for a long time. Spirit yeah. of Eden, in a way, it was kind of fun because it was new. It got weird, but it, but Laughing Stock was the tough yeah. one for me. I mean, it's the album that I listened to least, I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah. Dark. I um I prefer I much prefer Spirit of Eden. I see that one and Lavingstock and Mark Solo as sort of a piece. They all were sort of taking this in this invest this experimentation, you know, further further on. The solo album is fine. It's there's less hooks there. It's almost completely atmosphere. Whereas the first the other two Talk Talk albums at least have some songs in them. I think uh, After the Flood on Stop is one of my favorites. Oh, I love that one, yeah. like ascension day on laughing stock too that's because it, it gets a little harder there one thing you mentioned in the book i can't i think it was after laughing stock but before the solo mark had went off and you called it lived an alternative lifestyle what does that mean well i mean not just i mean he he was pulling back from you know obviously after the 86 they came off the road in 86 they never toured again they never did really any gigs or promotional things yeah a couple of videos made for Spirit of Eden, um, but they didn't, they weren't functioning as a band. Paul left after Spirit of Eden. Lee, in a way, kind of was a hired hand by the time Laughing Stock came around. He was almost sacked at the end of Laughing Stock, you know, in, in a way. But no, Mark just uh, disappeared off. Um, yeah, he had nothing to do with music in, in the sense of promoting anything. Yeah. 
he did a couple of things. I was involved with this AV, uh, AV1. I was involved with an artist. We did these audio visual installations. And uh, Mark was just intrigued by that. So he played a piano piece for, for, for one of our installations. Mm. But he was just like not, you know, in the music business. As yeah. um, and then I got a call to go out and see him. He was living up in Suffolk. Was he married? Did he have kids? Yeah, no, he's, he's married to Flick, and he had two two very young boys at the time, probably, I guess, about seven or eight, around that oh. kind of age. Um, so I went up to Suffolk um, to see him, and he uh, took me out to, he had a kind of um, a gatehouse, if you like, something that, you know, had a garage, but above it was a, was a, a room that he had as a studio. And he played me the whole album, of his solo album. He'd, he'd done it all on Logic, and he just used samples for all the instruments, and he'd written it. That was it. It was there, presented with an album. Which, you know, I say, I'd never, you know, when we did uh, Spirit Reading and Laughing Stock, Love Stock was so skeletal. Yeah. Uh, there was nothing, you know, and then suddenly you go out and see Mark after, what, five years or something yeah. of no contact plays you a finished record and and it was amazing as well um the plan i mean because I, I you know i didn't really want to do another album uh, it took it all you know, in a way so i i agreed that i would set him up you know we were talking about how to <clears throat> how to he was in the process of moving from suffolk to wimbledon so when we actually made the album he was living in wimbledon he still had this, you know, when I met him for that album, he was up in Suffolk. Um, and he just talked about, you know, that 50s, um, how do you, you know, that 50s where one mic basically yeah. the, the room. Right. And you stood up for solos and, you know, everything was just one mic. And um, he said, so how could we kind of update that to today? And and the thing, again, you know, being around Mark for so long, you get used to his kind of sarcastic or humor and his dark side. I went, well, you could make it stereo, we put two mics up, and it was almost like a joke, you know. Mm -hmm. It's just like, well, what else can we do if you're only going to use one mic? He goes, great idea, let's do that. Um, so we did actually just have two mics. That the whole album is just two mics. Um, and when we got into it further, they'd say, I wasn't going to do it but then eventually i kind of <laughs> said yes um it was all about the room yeah so, you know we went to air first and we thought that was just a bit too live it was also very it, very corporate you know very a bit like abbey road it didn't feel like you could really you know rock and roll um, although it was a jazz type record right but we went there and we just thought the room was too live and then we went to, I think it was Lansdowne, and it was very dead. And then we went to the studio Master Rock um, in Kilburn, and, and it was perfect. And Mark says, I'm not recording a, a studio that's called Master Rock, you know. <laughs> I said, well, you know, the room sounds great, doesn't it? He goes, the uh -huh. room's great. He said, but they've got to change the name of the studio, you know. Um, <laughs> and we did that. You know, we basically got this matched pair of M49s, originals and put a chair in the center you know in the in front of the glass you know with the room in front of you and brought everybody in and positioned them kind of in the room 
so Mark and I are in the, in the, in the control room listening to just these two mics and going, okay, you know, drums further back, you know, mm-hmm. you first to the right, you know, woodwind, can you move it? You know, and we got everyone eventually into that perspective that you hear on the record. And then we basically marked the floor with their name and their instrument. Yeah. Um, and because Mark is a control freak in that sense, um, we then sent everybody home and did everybody individually. Uh-huh. But on their spot. <laughs> so, you know, where in the 50s, if we were uh-huh. doing a 50s record, everyone would perform. Yeah. He wanted the control of being able to basically fine-tune stuff. And I think was probably a bit nervous of having, you know, 20 people all at once. So we, you know, we started with Martin Ditchum, who we always seem to start with, really, doing shaker, percussion, something to just give us, you know, there uh-huh. and, you know, added the bass and Mark did some acoustic and then um, the other guitar player, uh, Dominic Miller. Yeah. But nothing was moved. You know, we never changed the level of the mics. So they weren't compressed, they weren't EQ'd <clears throat> and the level never changed. Mm-hmm. So if something in the room is loud, it's loud. Yeah. And if it's quiet, it's quiet. And right. so we, But we had control. So basically we were just having, you know, when we came to mix, we just basically put up many, many, many stereo pairs. And that's when we could, Mark could fine tune, we could drop a dB off this pair, yeah. Yeah. drums off that, you know, and, 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 and control it to a degree. But those mics never changed for, for, for all the months that we were in there. That room yeah. just stayed like it was. Wow. Um, wow. And it is remarkable because if you listen to it, you know, when I came home initially, when we had some stuff down and put it on here, at home, it was like, wow, it's like you're in the room with these yeah, guys, which yeah. was the idea, but it, for it to work as well as it did, you know, yeah, on headphones and everything, it's just like you're, you're just in the middle of that yeah. room. Yeah. So, you know, it was fantastic. And then, you know, with all those albums, we, we didn't have, you know, Spirit Reading Love stuff, Mark, all we used were EMT echo plates if we wanted some reverb. Spirit of Eden and Laughingstock is mainly spring reverb. And then repeats, you know, tape repeats. They're the only three things that are effects. Everything else you hear yeah. is all for real. You know, it's whether it's backwards. Um, I mean, there's all kinds of things like spooling. You know, when you when you run the tape back and you just hear a little spooling sound as it runs uh-huh. across the heads. You know, when when we were doing Spirit of Eden, <clears throat> as we built up more and more tracks, when we'd go back to the top, you get these little melodies. You know, the and Mark would go, wow, that's fantastic. Let's record that. You know, so you'd record the spooling. Yeah. Become something that you would then fly in. Right. So, you know, if you listen to those records with that in mind, you can hear these little like, oh, totally. So well, there's going yeah. on. And back- just these amazing sound collages. Yeah. 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 Um, what do you think? I'm I'm always baffled by how Mark went from being the talk talk original first album guy to what he became did he ever communicate with you was that a natural progression that he he started out with synthesizers and that's what interested him and then his tastes and his abilities and his talents just kept evolving or was kicking it off as a synthesizer band was that a trojan horse was that his way to just get seen and in the business so that he could 
then go off and do what he wanted. Well, pardon it, but I guess, you know, it was early 80s, wasn't it, when the first tracks came out and it was keyboard-based. Um, he would have been influenced by the producers he was working with. He, would, he wouldn't have been in a position then to have really been able to say too much like, well, I want to do this. True, sure good point. Would have, you know, he would have had his opinions, but I yeah. think um, they kind of went with the flow on the first two records. It was really at the... When they were doing the second album, I think they were doing it with Brett Davis, who went on to do the Roxy Music after, yep. after I left Manifesto. Um, and that wasn't working out well. Now, whether that was Mark, it wasn't working out for the record company, I don't know. But that's when Tim was brought in to the mm -hmm. project. So Tim came in to kind of salvage the second record. Mm -hmm. And obviously the way Tim works and the rapport that Mark and Tim had okay. led you to... to so the color of makes spring. Sense. I think okay. the color of spring album really was the start for me. I mean, I yeah. see it, color of spring, spring of being laughing stock. Mm -hmm. For me, the solo album is almost a thing on its own. It's a Agreed. Because color of spring, a lot of the sounds they're more extreme on spirit reading, but the variophon, yeah, and, and the kind of you know the, the weird tuning on the choirs and things that was already happening on spirit of, on the color of spring. Color of spring, you're right. And you can hear the transition in spirit. Yeah. Um, it's just, you know, they got rid of less and less in the way of the, the pop. Yeah, they did. And just kept, you know. I think that's why I go back and forth. Color of Spring might be my favorite of all of them, just because it is that middle ground. It's still, it's still rooted in some pop songs with some hooks. Living in another world is just, I think, a masterpiece because it, it shows you where they're going to go, but it's rooted still in some pop thinking still, whereas Spirit of Eden just abandons everything, you know? Yeah, um, just soars off. The completely yeah, different. it really does. Really does. Well, I could talk to you for hours just about that. But anyway, okay. A um, couple more. You good? Mm -hmm. Okay. We should talk about Dido for a second. I will admit I'm not, I don't care one way or the other about Dido. Um, I don't buy those albums or listen to them. They're like, pleasant background music to me. But we do try to cover the business side very sensitively on here. And your story of working with Dido from a business perspective was really fascinating because it sounded to me like that album, the first one, what's it, No Angel or Your Angel or something, um, was like the most successful thing that you had ever worked on, sold like 12 million copies, but you didn't really get paid until later, she found out about that, supposedly. Well, I, mean, I Again, it's because of the, again, Talk To It led me into it. Um, I was in in the same studio as them. Um, Rollo was working with Faithless. Yeah. And um, I was in there mixing, um, I think it was Midnight Choir, which is this Norwegian band that I work with. And um, I'm making a cup of tea, Rollo comes out and just, you know, are you feel that did talk talk you know we must talk so i ended up getting involved with 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 rollo i did a lot of stuff with him but mainly faithless um and there were a few other rob deacon there were a few projects that we worked on and dido was was had a day job but dido would pop up in the evenings you know she was one of younger sisters she'd turn up and you know sometimes do the odd backing vocal um otherwise just you know hang out um with a lawyer boyfriend, uh, it was all very easy going. So I knew Dido for maybe a couple of years. And then one day Rollo rather embarrassingly kind of said to the musicians, myself and the musicians, look, you know, my kid's sister, I mean, it's great looking back. 
my kid sister, she's got a few songs that she wants to put down. You know. um, would any of you, you know, be interested in just, you know, doing a few weeks and, uh, and work? And of course, we, we all thought, yeah, sure. You know, I mean, I like working with uh, He said, but I can't pay you what I pay you all for faith because I'm paying for it. So, you know, can you all take a, a, a reduction? So we said, yeah, sure. You know, that's um, that's cool. And then, you know, the first album, I still like the first album. It was done in like six weeks. Um, it's quite English, there's, there's humour there, there's some great songs. Um, and it was probably done in about 97, but it took like two years for it to really happen. You know, first, um, she was on, it was used on Sliding Doors, the movie yep. Sliding Doors, and then it was... Um, Eminem Stan really helped out. Yep. Eminem. And then we did, um, you know, got involved with um, White Flag. But the difference, I mean, I felt, I just kind of feel sorry for Guy Um Not, you know, not financially, I think she sold 12 million of the first album, 12 million of the second album, you know, so two albums, 24 million. She made about 24 million quid. So the second album, we all, you know, we got paid, you know, proper session rates as it were. But it was tough because the, the first album, it was just Rollo, the faithless musicians, myself, you know, Dido, it was just easy and fun. And I, you know, we were on tape still then. So we would have a lot of, we had Simpty running a lot of outboard keyboards and things, but all still in the room. You could still change them. And we'd leave, leave three vocals, well, four tracks free on the multi track on the 24. So we'd do only three takes of Dido that, you know, three takes she was happy with. And then Dido and I would bounce down and there's the vocal, you know, everything was far, six weeks and it's a great album. Mm -hmm. And then you fast forward to kind of 2001 or two, whenever it was, and we're doing White Flag. And it was just a pain uh, because suddenly she's got a record company. She's got three A&R guys. She's got a manager. They've all got assistants and they're all on the sessions, you know, all on their mobile phones. Yeah. I mean, it was typical, the the music business that I hate, you know, yeah. was exactly what it was. It was like people on the session that don't need to be there yeah. with mobile phones, taking calls in the control room. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, an interference of, of the phone sound getting through electronics. We'd got rid of tape because Rollo had now gone into Logic. So you're on a format that I wasn't really used to. And also I couldn't do the kind of things I used to do. And none of the... Um, keyboards, the Jupiters and things like that, were running live anymore, you know, because they always used to run live. We'd have three or four of these things simpted up. Mm-hmm. So one might be a bass, and, you know, but Sister Bliss or Ayala from, she would often, you know, tweak little things as the tracks progressed. And it was just great. You know, suddenly, whatever's gone into Logic is the finished thing. So we had never had the area to tweak stuff. That took nearly a year to make. And I think, I believe I was told it cost nearly a million pounds. But she sold 12 million copies. All fine, you know. But I then, I didn't really see much after that with Dido. I'd kind of bowed out. She had a lovely house in London, but she moved to LA and kind of did all the things that you don't do, really. So she's living in LA. And... um, 
she, it started quite innocent. She'd phone up um, and say, look, I'm in the studio. Um, we seem to be having trouble getting a vocal sound. You know, would you have a word with the engineer? Fine, you know, I'll tell yeah. anyone they use because it's never really the same for me two days running. So I'm quite happy to say, well, we used an 87 and a Yuri 1176, you know, with these settings. But, you know, why not? It's not gold dust. So I would do that. And then she might have done that about three times. And then one day, instead of Dido phoning, I've now got her manager mm. phoning, saying, you know, Dido's in the studio and she can't get the vocal sound. And, you know, would you know? And I, I it kind of hurt in a way. I was just like, yeah. God, and these people, I've told her three times, why don't, as, why doesn't anyone write this stuff down? Yeah. You don't have to keep phoning me. And I was, I was a bit pissed anyway. I'd been drinking. I was pissed off, that's for sure. So I said to the guy, <laughs> yeah, okay. I said, look, take this down, I'm, you know, because this is the last time I'm going to tell you, but it was a year 11, you know, 1176 was this attack, this release, ratio four, you know, either yeah. a U87 or a 67 or something that you've got there that's nice. And when we'd, um, you know, when I'd finished it all, I went, why don't you just fuck off? <laughs> don't bother ringing me again. I said, you only, you know, you only want something when yeah. you get in touch. Yeah. So then that was the end of it. But then three days later, I get an email from him saying, you know, I, I, I missed something here. You know, I, what, what's the problem? Yeah. I then wrote back and said, there is no problem. But I said, you know, when we did the first album, and that's when I said we did the first album, we did it for a favor to Rollo. We were on a few hundred quid a day or less. less you know, I said, Dyla's now sold, you know, at least 24 million records. She's got houses in LA, houses in London. You know, she's very wealthy. No one ever came back and even said thank you. Yeah. You know, while well, I'll take this up with Dido, I'm shocked to hear this. I said, no, you're not. You're a music business, <laughs> not, you know, manager. Right. You know how this works. You know? Right, right. Said, but in future, just don't ring me yeah. to ask me. I said, if you want me to get the vocal sound that we got on Last Flag or, you know, the first album, I said, why don't you employ me? Yeah. So that was the kind of end of all of that. Right. But, you know, <clears throat> good for Dido, really. She um, she then got in touch, wrote me this lovely letter, which she wouldn't let me use in the book. Oh. The lawyers said, she's mad. This makes her look like an angel, you know. <laughs> um, but she wouldn't. And uh, she then came back and gave, sent me this check for 20 grand, which is still, yeah. I mean, nice chunk of money. Yes. But nothing to what I, because on the second album, I had actually said, any chance of, you know, half a percent, yeah, we can't give away percentages, you know. It's like, right. So it was one of those, and then unfortunately, uh, I mean, everything kind of went wrong for Dido. Um, the guy that she'd been with for all those years up to doing the first album, she was about to get married to him. She dumped him, which was just, like, and she, that's last flag, the uh, white flag. All yeah. her songs, all about Bob, who she. Dumped. Oh really? Like they're either you know thank you is about him, but yeah. that's one together yeah. white flag is all about you know what a big mistake i made um yeah. but he went off and you know got a life and died as she's now got a kid and you know settled but i mean this is 20 years ago when we talked you know so it's taking yeah. a long time and i kind of feel a bit sorry for her because she got sucked up in the in the business i mean if i'd been her at 28 having 24 million quid mm. instead of keep trying to chase the next hit that sounds right. like something I've already done, right. I would have been 
I can experiment. I can do anything I want, you know. Right. And instead, she brought out, I mean, she's had about six albums out. Yeah. It's only the first two that really did anything. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I feel like whatever sort of, I feel like it, it continued to get to me, to my ears, a little more kind of watered down. It just because it, she becomes part of the business. She becomes a, a cog in the wheel of the business. And I think and it's the a, people have kind of got fed up with her is a bit back to like Phil Collins. Yeah. She was so successful. I mean, she yeah. was the biggest selling female of whenever it was, 2000 or whatever. Mm-hmm. I remember being in Seattle and there were these huge billboards of, you know, Dido's concert that was sold out. Mm-hmm. She was vast all around the world. Yeah. And I think, you know, over about three years, people just got fed up with, yeah. with Dido, you know, you yeah. either, you either like, or you didn't like her voice. I mean, I, I say the first album I really enjoyed, I thought it was a really cool little album. Um, mm-hmm. White Flag, it's all a bit too manufactured. It leaves yeah. me a bit cold, you know. Me but too. Then, you know, I like things that have a bit of earth to yeah. them. Me know. too, yeah. <clears throat> Interesting bit of trivia, the Faithless album you worked on Sunday, 8 p.m. Yeah. That cover is at the Bluebird, and that's down the street from my house. Fantastic. Yeah, that's about two miles away from my house. I go to the Bluebird all the time. Not really? anymore, but that was my favorite yeah, yeah. Denver venue. Yeah. Uh, it was fun working with them. I worked with Maxi about three years ago. Uh, again, somebody out of the blue, you know, I just about, yeah. I'd kind of retired, decided I didn't want to do this anymore. And um, I actually put a, up a vague announcement onto, you know, the, uh, and about three days later, Maxi phones me up. Well, I got this project and I thought he was taking the piss. So you taking the piss, you know, you, you've seen, <laughs> I haven't seen anything like, but you're the man for the job, you know. <laughs> and, um, but it was, again, it was, it was, just brilliant fun. We went into yeah. Rack Studios in London. Mm-hmm. He had a ten-piece live band with with people from like, had the Cure, you wow. know, the bass player from um, well Charlie Jones, who was in Robert Plant's band mm-hmm. recently. But anyway, and Portishead drummer. It was just Ooh, nice. Band. Yeah, and we yeah. went in working to tape, and it was like live takes, and it was yeah. just a dream project. That's great. Great version of mass destruction. My dad came into my room holding his hat. I knew he was leaving. He sat on my bed, told me some fat son. I have a duty calling on me. You and your sister be brave, my little soldier. Don't you dare forget all that I told you. Cause you're the mister of the house. Now remember this. And when you wake up in the morning, give your mama a kiss. Then I had to say goodbye. In the morning, woke mama with a kiss on each eyelid. Even though I'm only a kid, certain things can't be hid. Mama grabbed me, held me like I was made a go but left her. And the story's untold. I said, Mama, it'll be. Whether long range weapon, a suicide bomb, a wicked mind is a weapon of mass destruction. Whether you saw away son, or a BBC one, misinformation is a weapon of mass destruction. You could a Caucasian or a poor Asian. Racism is a weapon of mass destruction. Could a inflation or globalization. Fear is a weapon of mass destruction. You could a Halliburton and run. 
Anyone greed is a weapon of my destruction on a better find courage Overcoming action is a weapon of mass destruction So I mean it's weird isn't it because you kind of um you think I don't want to do something well and then somebody gives you exactly what you do want to do that's right which hasn't right. been around for so long you know so right. don't say it was, it was brilliant you know that's great I uh I like those guys a lot Maxi especially um okay well, that's, I mean, that's basically the book. There are a few other things that aren't in the book or that I pulled out that I don't know if there's interesting stories about them. I feel like I've kept you forever anyway, but this is, this is gold, Phil. I, I love every one of these stories is so great. Um, yeah, I don't know. You tell me if there's something interesting to talk about. Uh, Arthur Brown, I just had him on recently, a couple weeks ago, actually. There's a China crisis, the B-52s, King, Steve Perry, Zero Seven, Joey Lawrence, of all people. Is there an interesting story that didn't make the book in any one of those? Uh, Arthur Brown, I mean, I worked with him uh, on The Kingdom Come when I was 17. Oh, wow. Doing the Fire album at Lembrick. And we've done stuff over the years. The last time was, um, I did Glastonbury uh, with him in 2011, I think it was. But, um, and we're still in touch. I mean, I just adore that guy. I mean, he's Good. Incredible. He's such a That's nice it. guy. Incredibly, you know, finally it seems as if people are actually acknowledging the guy a bit. But he's been out there in, you know, in the wilderness in a way, still doing what he does and getting very little you know, yep. attention. Suddenly people are beginning to realize. And he's 76 or something, and he's still yep. as good as they come. Um, but that, there's there's no real um, special stories about him. Just that you know he's a lovely guy. And, he's a good and dude. Fun yeah. Working with him. Yeah. Zero seven, another you know great great bunch of guys. Henry loved loved working with them. Um, I think we made more money out of of uh, using the tracks for sinks on TV <laughs> and behind programs. And I'm sure the records. But it was the first time I got to work with Sia. Uh, yes. Uh, yep. she, you know, so I love Zero Seven, and again, they were—you know—they all come from Rack. They were engineers at Rack, um, and they kind of left and you know put this band together. But when they got me involved, I mean, suddenly you've got three engineers, and you know, it's like that seems a lot. <laughs> and they were great because they just kind of you know backed off and became musicians, uh, yeah. producers, but didn't get involved. And just let yeah. Me do what they did. But, um, yeah, I'd love to work with them more. Actually, I enjoyed working with them. And, I love them. I uh, saw them in concert fairly early on. I think you worked on the Garden album, and I think I saw them yeah. on the one before that. But um, I saw them at the Fillmore in San Francisco, and it was so cool because, as you know, there's like three or four different lead singers. So Sia comes out, sings a song, she goes off. One of the other people comes on, they play his song, he goes off, someone else comes on. So it's this revolving door. You know, there's three or four of them and they keep, they kind of just go round and round coming on stage and playing their songs. It was really interesting. I loved what they were doing. Yeah, I did that uh, garden and I think your ghost. Yeah, um, yeah. But they haven't really done too much for a while. As far no, as I haven't seen them for a while. Um, that could, you know, you mentioned something about making money. Again, going back to the business side, when you get, I mean, you're retired now. I assume you live comfortably. You've worked on a lot of things over the years. I don't know if, and if this is too personal, tell me, but I don't know if when you get like a royalty check, what's the biggest 
What's the biggest line item on that check? What do you continue to make the most money for? Um, I run it. Well, the thing, yeah, on the business side, I mean, I've made probably just over 300 albums. Um, but I have a really bad karma when it comes to royalties. Um, and now that Universal have kind of bought up everybody, um, it's very hard, you know, tracking it down. There's money for yeah. Robert Plant that's sitting in LA that I can't yeah. get. All of that. Um, I actually live on a state pension. I have no, I've not, I'm not wealthy at all. Okay. Um, I don't have, I, although I say I've made all these records, um, I never really um, took care of much of the business side. I, I mean, Robert Palmer was one of the, the greats because he gave me a point on on the records mm -hmm. uh, because he said you're part of the team we need yeah. you so he he volunteered that um chris blackwell gave me it for steve winwood and for john martin because i was part of the team i never actually asked for these things every time i've asked they've said no i think mm -hmm. um the one that still seems to pay ironically is john martin um one world comes next okay uh robert problem with robert is that he, they never really recouped at the time so although they've recouped now the royalties i mean you know if there are yeah. royalties it's pretty pretty small amount got it okay. um i think um in a way you know being given 20 grand by dido is probably the biggest amount of money mm -hmm. off a record um mm -hmm. yeah okay. i've not been particularly sussed with with business or okay um, when I have, you know, say like Robert Plant, I've got 14,000 sitting in LA that I don't seem to be able to get. Um, I, you know, I was, I've never been very um, positive about Universal and especially Lucien Grange, who was the head of Polydor when we did Laughing Stock. Mm -hmm. He now runs Universal. Mm -hmm. So if he's, if somebody's read the, the chapter on Laughing Stock and had a word with him, that might be why I don't see royalties anymore. <laughs> <laughs> who knows yeah so, yeah you know, he, he was the guy that that um sat on laughing stock for a year yeah and then released it and in england deleted it three months later 
I mean, that's just unbelievable. So frustrating. Anybody. Yeah. You're ahead of a record company. You've just paid out all this kind of money because those records were so expensive. Yeah. To make. Um, you'd think you'd want to keep it out there or do something to get your money back. It seems exactly. bizarre to me that you would delete it or I know. not promote it. Um, I think Spirit of Eden probably cost about £350,000. Wow. And Laughing Stock probably cost, you know, three fifty, four hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. You know, when you book a studio for a, or have a studio almost for a year, um, running, you know, lots of tape machines and Mitsubishi's and all of that in, especially in the eighties, mm-hmm. we were paying fourteen hundred pounds a day for the studio. I mean, for studios that today, the same studios you can get for like three hundred and fifty pounds. Yeah. yeah. So we were paying fourteen hundred pounds a day, which was a deal. Yeah, and then all the musicians that came in, you know, um, yeah. even my fee f- for nine months or so, you know, even on a moderate fee, that adds up. Yeah. So you know, it's it's a huge amount of investment for those records. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I you, it's a the book really drove that home to me, and just the technical aspect of having to be an engineer right? when I'm imagining, like you were saying, you know setting up a room the way you want it and then having to mark on the floor because at the end of the day, a lot of the equipment's going to go back into a closet somewhere and you got to come back the next day or whenever. And you want to know that the, this mic is set up six inches from here and facing here. And I've just never thought about having to document all of that well, until think, reading your book. Yeah. I think, uh, I mean, we had a, you know, lockouts on all those albums, so we never had to strip anything down. Hmm. But, you know, Mark, you know, this is the side of things that you don't even think about. When you're not using EQ and you've just got one mic, you think, well, it's easy, you know. Um, But we used to measure things on the Spirit of Eden Livestock. Eventually, we we measured things from like three different points so that we could be totally accurate. And it paid off when Mark, you know, comes in three or four months after having put a piano down Mm -hmm. and says, I just want to add one note. So, you know, you can get the mic back to exactly the same position. We even had temperature. We knew the temperature and humidity of the room because that made a huge difference. Um, You know, when we were doing the laughing stock, you know, this one mic on the drums at 28 feet away, again, you think, well, how easy is this? You know, you don't, I never thought about the delay from Lee hitting it to picking it up. And if the temperature was very cold in the, if the room was very cold, if the aircon had been on all night or something had happened, and if it was dry and cold, it would be about 24 milliseconds. But if it was really humid and hot, it would be like 28, 30 milliseconds. So every day when we were doing those things, we would have to clock, you know, the temperature and do tests to to make, you know, we had close mics. Um, to feed the other musicians because, you know, we weren't recording those. And this is what goes, you know, I was saying about having five guys in a room getting the sounds and playing. And and I used to like all the headphones to be very similar so everyone's in the same space. Spirit of Eden is like throwing away all the cars that you've ever worked with. Mm -hmm. Suddenly you've got close mics that I'm not even recording, but they're feeding the musicians and Lee. And then the mic I am recording, no one's listening to. I mean, it's just, and the headphones, you know, Tim would have his, like he was in some echo space somewhere, you know. And then Mark would be quite 
clear and straight. And then Lee, you know, it was just like everyone's got in a Absolutely. different world. And that's what really made those things kind of fun, but also really tricky. And so we had the we used the bass drum, but with the bass drum and the mic I'm actually using, we would we, from that we could work out what our delay was Jeez. because anyone playing along with Lee would have to be delayed to be in time with the mic I'm actually recording. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh, this is all the stuff you just don't think about when you're a regular guy listening to music. You don't think about all that stuff. But I never, you know, when we started that, I never thought about that side of it either. It just, you know, laughing stock just seemed like, well, because, we, you know, we're always trying to strip everything down, I guess. And on laughing stock, we'd, on, on Spirit of Eden, we had the Neumann mic, if you, you know, the Neumann head. Mm -hmm. It's got, ear, you know, the mics in the ears. Mm -hmm. So that was our main drum mic. And it basically just stood in front of the drums. And then we had contact mics on the toms and a bass drum and snare mic. When we came to do Laughing Stock, Mark and Tim said right from the start, we cannot repeat anything that we did on Spirit of Eden. It has to be all different. So that's when, I mean, I kind of, you know, again, I kind of went, well, should we just use one mic on the drums? Great, let's just use one mic. And then we brought him out of the cupboard he was in and moved yeah. him around the room, you know, found a spot. But we, you, they, you could never repeat stuff. That was the thing that Mark got into. And I think, probably after the second album, which is why Color of Spring is different than Spirit of Eden. He did, never wanted to repeat himself and do the same thing again. And it even came down to, you know, mics. Don't use the same mics we used last time. Um, you know, there's no echo, uh, no, no EQ, you know. Yeah. Only using stuff that was after that. All these things with ways of not kind of repeating himself. Yeah, and I think that's yeah. why when, when we finished the, the acoustic album, I don't think there was really anywhere left to go in us. I think you're right. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, we worked together with Annie Garbrek, did a couple of tracks for her as producers. Um, and that's when pretty much Mark and I, you know, initially went out separate ways, you know, we were in touch, you know, I was in touch with him. I was in touch with him just a couple of months before he died. I never even knew he was ill. That's the kind of guy he was, you know, but right. Paul, didn't. Paul was devastated. Yeah. Um, Paul didn't know he was ill. You know, it's like the Nobody only people did. I think that actually knew he was ill were probably his wife, maybe his, his old manager, you know, um, mm. no one knew. Yeah. And it's incredible that he could have kept. What did he die of? I don't even know. I think it was, I mean, I don't really know for sure, but because it happened so fast and he'd had an operation which they thought had worked and then it hadn't, I'm guessing a pancreatic cancer. I would think it was some kind of cancer, but there's few that kind of, you know, get you that quick. Sure. So I'm guessing at that, but I have no idea. I've never been told. Paul's never been told. We've never heard. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and it's not the kind of thing that you, you know, knowing how private Mark was, and I've always tried to support that, Mm -hmm. So I've done interviews and talked about it, but I try to, you know, yeah. keep that side of, of him. Yeah. So, and with Flick and every, everyone else, it's like, it's just not, yeah, Paul and I have talked about it, just going, man, you know, we never knew. Yeah. And we'll probably never know, you know. Yeah, fascinating. Well, Phil, um, this went above and beyond my wildest expectations. Thank you so much for talking with me. You're a legend. You've worked on, if you can't tell, and I'm just scratching the surface. I mean, for anyone who wants to know more, can go read the book. 
we could do hours more. I just, uh, you're a fascinating guy and I'm so grateful for all the good you've put in the world. Thank well, you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks yeah. For all right. There you have it. Phil Brown. That was pretty amazing. I love Phil and I love talking to people like Phil. It is so great. And I hope if anyone out there doesn't know that much about Robert Palmer or Talk Talk or have fully, fully investigated everything they've done, I hope this inspired you to do that. Um, I wanted to close it out with one of the songs that I mentioned that I really liked that uh, Phil worked on. This is Ascension Day off of um, Laughing Stock. Uh, I think we're gonna we're gonna have to bring Phil back on to do a deep dive of something, don't you guys? Anyway, um, next week. Well, so here's the deal: if all things go according to plan, next week's guest is gonna be really big. If it doesn't go according to plan, next week's guest is gonna be sort of small. But either way, it's gonna be great. So come back next week and and uh, check it out. Huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man Makevich, my right hand man. Thank you, buddy, for everything that you do. Um, guys, you can like our Facebook page. You can send me a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. I don't think we have any bonus material coming out this week, so you'll just have to wait and find out who our guest is next week. Okay? Thanks, everybody. We love you. <laughs>